And we're live. What's up? All right. How are you, man? What's going Doing on? Doing great. Sam Harris, ladies and gentlemen. You got Harris and Harris. Dan and Sam. No yeah. relation, obviously. No relation. Brother from another mother kind of thing. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Actually, no, we, we, we work this out. We are deeply unrelated because your, your Harris is the Jewish side of your family, right? No, 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 no. My Harris is the... Yes, actually, no, you're right. My yeah. Harris is the Jewish side of the family. It was changed at Ellis Island from, allegedly from Addis, which doesn't sound Jewish either, but uh, yes. Right. And yeah, your my, Harris is my, my from Harris the is, is yeah. uh, the Goyam side of the family. Yeah. Isn't that funny how many people's names were changed at Ellis Island? Yeah. Like, what are they like, nah, not American enough. Yeah. Eh. Meanwhile, Schwarzenegger made it. Right. Proudly. Yeah. yeah. Odd. So, huh. uh, anyway, thanks for coming, you guys. Thanks for having this us. It's a weird time. You know, I've been extra weirded out over the last couple months, and I just got back from Mexico. I was on vacation, and I didn't do shit for a week. Mm. And in not doing anything for a week, I really got a chance to sit down and, and think about stuff. And I'm more weirded out by life today than I think I ever have been before. So I'm excited to have you on because I want to hear your story because Sam has been telling me about it and I looked into it and it's it, please explain like what happened to you and like where you were and what happened to you. Okay, so it was uh, you're, you're talking about the panic attack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was 2004. I was on a little show that we do at ABC News called Good Morning America. That's a big show. It's a big show. That's not a little show. No, it's not a little show. <laughs> uh, and I was I was doing the job that I, I was filling in as the newsreader. That's the person who comes on at the top of each hour and reads the headlines. Right. Um, and uh, I just freaked out. I just lost it. I, like how? So I was a couple seconds into it, and I, I started to get really scared. And it just... Uh, if you've ever had a have you ever had a panic attack? No. So it's like anxiety on steroids. So you start to worry, but then your fight or flight instincts kick in. So um, your lungs seize up, your palms start sweating, your mouth dries up, your heart is racing, your mind is racing. You just I couldn't breathe and therefore couldn't speak. So a couple seconds into reading what was supposed to be six stories right off of the teleprompter, I just. I lost the capacity to speak, and I had to kind of squeak out uh, something about, you know, back to you, back to the main anchors. Wow. Yeah, it sucked uncontrollably. <clears throat> now, what, what caused it? Uh, do you know? I do. Yeah, yeah. I definitely know. Um, it's some dumb behavior in my personal life is what caused it. I, I uh, had spent a lot of time as, as a war reporter at ABC News. Um, I was in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Israel, West Bank, Gaza. Six six trips to Iraq, and a, I had come home from a long run. And I I covered uh, kind of the pre-invasion, invasion, and then uh, insurgency in one's kind of six-month run. And I came home after that, and I I got depressed. And I didn't actually know I was depressed, but I was having some obvious symptoms. In hindsight, uh, I was having trouble getting out of bed. Felt like I had a low-grade fever all the time. And then I did something really smart, which is I started to self-medicate with uh, cocaine and ecstasy. Uh, and even though I wasn't doing it all the time, I like to say it wasn't like that, you know, you ever see The Wolf of Wall Street? Yes. Where they're mm -hmm. popping lewds. That, that wasn't me. I was, and I wasn't getting high on the air or anything like that. But, you know, I was, getting, I was partying in my spare time because it made me feel better. Uh, so after I had the panic attack, I went to a doctor who's an expert in panic, and he started asking me a bunch of questions, trying to figure out what, what, what had caused the panic attack. And one of the questions was, do you do drugs? And I was like, yeah, I do drugs. And he leaned back in his chair, 
and gave me a look that uh, communicated uh, the following sentiment. Um, okay, asshole, mystery solved. And he just pointed out that, you know, you raise the level of adrenaline in your brain artificially. Uh, you, you make it much more likely to have a panic attack. And I, at, at, at baseline, am a jittery little dude. So it doesn't, doesn't take much to put me in that zone. I mean, you is, just offered me coffee, and I said no because right. I mean, that even that will freak me out. Well, it's weird that ecstasy and cocaine was the combination because ecstasy is something that they actually give to a lot of soldiers that have PTSD, yeah. and there's been quite a few tests on that. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't actually think ecstasy was the problem. The coke. I think it was the coke. Yeah, yeah. Well, it makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So, but those uh, are the two drugs I was mostly doing. How often were you doing it? I would say. You know, there would be months where I wasn't doing it at all because I would—I was off. I covered the 2004 presidential campaign. And I didn't have a lot of time to be, you know, snorting coke. So, um, but when I was home and around my friends, you know, on a good, on a busy week, um, you know, two, three times a week. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. that'll do you. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a, a comeback right now that uh, cocaine is experiencing. Did really? it ever go yeah. away? Huh. Did, I don't know. I've, I've never, never done it. it. Was there some sort of cocaine recession that I had to bounce back from? I believe there was. Really? Okay. Uh, this is what this. I'm to- talking totally ignorantly. I've been out of the game for mm. a long time. So the cocaine. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of boring now. Um, uh, but it feels to me like it's kind of a perennial favorite. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it went through a recession. Maybe it's just my perception. Huh. I had a, a buddy of mine when I was in high school, and his cousin was uh, hooked on coke. And I watched while we were in high school. He started selling it, and he withered away, lost like 30 pounds or something mm-hmm. like that. And just him and his girlfriend just hide out in the attic. They, yeah. they, lived, they had an attic apartment. They would just hide out there and watch TV and do coke and sell coke to people. And I was like, well, fuck that drug. Like, yeah. whatever that drug's doing. Like, these people, it's like, it was almost like knowing someone who had gotten bitten by a vampire right. and become something different. It was very strange. So yeah. my experience is seeing people do that led me to never do it. Yeah, I mean, it certainly was not like that for me. But you know, I it, I could see it over the horizon. You can. It's an incredibly addictive drug. Um, so I think you made the right call. Yeah, it seems a little. It's got a little too much gravity attached to it. Yeah, I mean, you 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 can get hooked, and it will bring you down. There are other drugs you can do. I'm not recommending drugs, but uh, the way uh, my friend Sam, my, my br- half-brother Sam over there does. Let, but, let me get uh, to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are other drugs, drugs you can do that have vastly lower addictive uh, uh, character. Uh, char- what's the word I'm looking for here, Sam? Characteristics? Yes, thank yeah. you. Um, so how did you recover? I so I wasn't actually doing it that long. I actually had never done hard drugs until my early thirties, and when I came home from the war zones, and um, and that's what started it. Yeah, you yeah, just were depressed. freaked out by seeing too much. No, you know it's, it's actually it wasn't PTSD. Uh, it was I was addicted to the adrenaline. Oh, I was having. Wow. I was. It was not that I was traumatized. It was that I was enjoying it too much, and I would come home and the world would seem gray and boring. Uh, Wow. Yes, that was that was the problem. Did you watch Hurt Locker? I'm sure you did, right? Yeah. Did did, did that resonate with you? Absolutely. It's been, a, it's been a while since I watched it, but abs- absolutely. I want to just be clear that the experience of a journalist is so different from the experience, so much more mild than the experience of a, an enlisted uh, man or woman. Sure. So I don't want to compare my experience to, to the Hurt Locker. I'm an I'm observer on the side, and I, and, and I don't even want to compare my experience to... 
more experienced war correspondents out there. I'm thinking of like guys like Richard Engel on NBC. Sebastian Junger. Absolutely. I just actually mm-hmm. sat down with him the other day for he's got a new documentary coming out. Um, my, my experiences are m- much more mild than that, but certainly enough to really get a sense of how thrilling it is. There's an expression, there's nothing more thrilling than the bullet that misses you. And in my case, luckily they all missed. That was not true for some of my friends. Um, but you, So I, I had a real sense of the stakes, but it is exciting. Uh, it's also thrilling on an on, on a idealistic level. I mean, I believe in the importance of bearing witness to the, what, to the tip of the spear, to what we're doing, to what our military is doing in our name. So all of that is a heady mix. So you knew people over there, uh, journalists that got killed? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. A, a very good friend of mine, the guy who actually ultimately set me up with my wife, is a guy named Bob Woodruff, who was a, uh, the anchor of World News Tonight on ABC News. He had only been in the chair for about a month when he was on a uh, trip to Iraq, and he got hit, literally got his head nearly blown off when he was in the back, when he was on the top of an Iraqi tank. Uh, almost died. Is an absolute miracle. He's alive. There are pictures of him on the internet with basically half a head. Um, Traumatic brain injury was brought back to life is is to this day a walking miracle uh, that he's alive uh, and and after he recovered he then uh, introduced me to the woman I married uh, so he's a close friend and I I, uh, I saw cases like that lost friends both Iraqi friends and journalist friends um, my the woman I was dating at the time when I when I was spending a lot of time in Iraq she got hit by a tank shell. Um, she was in in the the hotel Palestine where all the journalists were staying. She was on a balcony, and or one of her colleagues was on the balcony below her. He got a direct hit and died. Uh, he she carried him to the hospital, and she basically uh, got the reverberations and couldn't hear, still can't hear, as far as I know. Hmm. When you're a journalist and you're over in Iraq or in Afghanistan, you're in war, and what you're experiencing is so far removed from the day-to-day life that most people experience. What What is it like trying to relay that to people? How difficult is it trying to, because so I think so many people have this almost um, dramatic uh, television movie slash yeah. view of, of war where they don't, they don't ever experience it. Like I would, I would imagine probably 99% of the people that, or in this country, will never experience it. No, and that's good. Yeah. Um, no, it's it, it's it. I don't know that you can uh, ex- uh, describe it uh, in a way that will really give the full picture of its uh, absurdities and and horrors and um, long stretches of boredom punctuated by terror. Um, and also this other piece, which is taboo to talk about, which is the pleasure and excitement yeah. that yeah. people get. Yeah. fighting wars. I mean, they, this is Sebastian Younger's thesis as well. I mean, just the camaraderie is the most intense camaraderie Absolutely. they ever experience. And so that's something they come back to civilian life and are missing it. And, and it's part of what's so difficult about coming yeah. back. And that's why you see them a lot of uh, risk-taking behavior among uh, vets. Um, because you're looking for another way to get that hit of adrenaline, for sure. Mm. There was a an, uh, there's a book, and I'm I'm blanking on the name. It's a great book written by a, a much more experienced war correspondent than me. He used the phrase "war is a drug," and that to me sums it up. At least in my experience, I got hooked on the experience of being in these really 
elevated situations, heightened situations, cinematic, dramatic situations. And I would come home and I just I didn't know what to do to replace it. And so this synthetic squirt of adrenaline that you can get from cocaine seemed to do it for me. Obviously, it had tremendously negative uh, consequences. And so I wouldn't recommend it. But I see why people do this. So how did you how did you bounce back? Oh, uh, that was actually the question you asked me before that I somehow neglected to answer. So the doctor who pointed out that I was an idiot and doing drugs and it, it had caused the panic attack, uh, I agreed. He didn't think I needed to go to rehab because it was the it was pretty short lived. It was I was in my early 30s when I started and I'm still in my early 30s when I had the panic attack. And so it was only a couple of years. He said, just I want you to come see me once or twice a week forever uh forever so basically How convenient said, he said basically <laughs> indefinitely um so i still it's see him but not model. not yeah it's a good business model <laughs> but not that i mean it's been well north of uh it's been about 13 years so i don't see him that often now but for a long time i, I saw him intensively uh so that uh, you know it wasn't easy it's not easy um and i wouldn't have i wouldn't call what i, I mean there are people who have had drug addictions that are vastly more severe than mine. Right. Um, but it's a, it sucks to stop a habit that is giving you pleasure on, you know, on pretty, in pretty um, prominent areas of your brain. Well, your situation, what you're talking about, is a very, very, very extreme situation. Like being a journalist, a war correspondent, going over there, experiencing that intense sort of adrenaline rush, and then having your, your issues with it. But... It seems like there's a tremendous amount of people today that are stimulating themselves. Um, Adderall was a big one. I mean, it's just, uh, I know, uh, I've, I've found out recently like four or five people that I didn't know that were on Adderall. It seems like you just sort of start asking questions mm-hmm. and you find out how many people, I mean, all these, my kid goes to school with a bunch of other kids and you get to meet the parents and like fucking half of them are on Adderall. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's very weird. And Adderall is a form of amphetamine. And it seems like um, it just uh, is mind-boggling how many people are doing this stuff. We're dosing ourselves with all sorts of things. So it can be stimulate, stimulants, but it also can be uh, benzos, you know, yeah. some v- cousins of Valium. Um, it can be shopping, gambling. Uh, it can be uh, uh, whatever, except uh, the Twitter. Yeah. Um, and I... I think it's just speaking, we have a neuroscientist in the room, so I'll let him say more about this, and also a guy who's more um, experienced practitioner of Buddhism than I am, but, but, you know, it does speak to the nature of the human mind, that we're always on the hunt for the next little hit of dopamine, and um, now there are lots of ways to get it. Well, it's also very bizarre that you can just do that. I mean, I don't think there's ever been a time in history where you could just take a pill Mm. and you'll be elevated for five or six hours. I mean, and that your doctor will give you this pill, and they'll encourage you to take it, and then you'll find out that fifty percent of the people in your community are taking it. I've been I've done stories about parents who steal it from the kids. Also, just caffeine. I mean, I'm you know I'm reaching for the coffee here. Yeah. Uh, having slept poorly last night, um, but that is, and that's just as much of a drug. It's just not as it's not as potent a drug as taking methamphetamine or 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 Adderall or anything else that, that's a drug drug, but. Um, I mean, there's a whole. This this had civilizational consequences when when humanity more or less switched from alcohol in the morning to caffeine in the morning. <laughs> that's just 
things got a lot different. I mean, used for, for hundreds of years, people were just drinking ale and wine in the morning uh, before before coffee and tea became huge in, in, in Europe. And, and it, it, colonialism, the, 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 the engine of colonialism to a significant degree was coffee, tea, sugar. Um, and you know that things our behavior changed. People that were drinking ale and wine weren't wasn't a, a big part of it. The reason why they drank it with food is because water would get stagnant. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's there's the issue with clean water too. Yeah. 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 But when you just imagine the consequences of you and everyone you know getting up in the morning and just starting with beer or wine. I know, you know? people yeah. like that. I mean, that's that's a, <laughs> that's a that's a long day or a very short one. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, but yeah, it's. I mean, the, but the the fundamental point of uh, the, the underlying neuroscience is that all of these drugs, I mean, anything you're putting into your body that's modifying the behavior of your brain, is only modifying the existing available neurochemistry of your brain. I mean, the, the, these these molecules either get your brain to secrete more of an existing neurotransmitter or they mimic an existing neurotransmitter binding to the same receptor site, or they keep something in play longer than it would otherwise have been. They, they, they block the reuptake of, of neurotransmitters or, or, or neuromodulators. So it's not, your, a drug is never getting your brain to do something your brain is incapable of doing, right? So, and that's the most extreme thing, like DMT or, or LSD. I mean, the brain, the brain is still doing all of that. And so it stands to reason that there are potentially other ways of getting the brain to do that, whether it's meditation or whether it's, you know, computer interface ultimately to the brain. I mean, the people who are interested in, in brain-computer interface that not only uh, allows a quadriplegic to move a robotic arm or gets a, a, um, a Parkinson's patient to be able to move, but, you know, the, to the ultimate degree, I mean, actually augmenting human function, that's, uh, or, or opening landscapes of mind, psychedelic and otherwise, that have been unexplored. I mean, all, all of that is, um, in principle, possible because, again, we're just talking about electrochemical phenomenon happening in our heads, which are being, which is just there to be modulated. Now, when you were talking about being depressed, and Sam, you're talking about reuptake inhibitors. Um, I want to know what are your what are your thoughts on the massive amount of people that are on SSRIs now? I mean, it, I, there's another thing that I know. Mm. How many people I know that have either are on or have been on some sort of antidepressants? And it seems, I mean, to the lame to me, to someone who's never taken them or doesn't have personal experience with it, um, massively overprescribed. Yeah, well, I, I would anything I say is with a caveat that this is. I mean, I'm not a neurologist. I don't I have no. I have zero clinical experience, and um, this is certainly not my area. I'm not up on the the recent literature on the the efficacy of of uh, antidepressants. But there's I mean, clearly it, it's it's like anything. There's a spectrum. There are people who have been unambiguously helped by antidepressants. And there are people who are on them who shouldn't be on them, you know. And there are people who are on them who want to get off them and find it surprisingly difficult to get off them. And, and so it's just, it's these are blunt instruments by by definition because it's anything that's modulating serotonin in this case 
is effective everywhere serotonin is effective and it's just it's it's there's no magical property of of uh, finding the neuromodulator where where only the symptoms you want to relieve are affected because these these can, these chemicals do uh, a lot of things in a lot of places i mean even in your gut right so it's it's not so that hence the side effects you get with almost any medication um, and we would have to get it would be uh, in many respects as a matter of luck to find a pharmacological target that actually does just what you want it to do because which is to say that, that those receptors are not elsewhere that are going to produce side effects for you so um, that that's why a different kind of uh, intervention something like uh, ultimately some some uh, electrical or magnetic or or um, machine-based intervention um, could be more targeted because then you're you're not just putting something in the bloodstream that spreads everywhere. By by machine-based, you mean something like electrodes that they put on the mind to, or the surface of the head to stimulate areas of the brain? Yeah, yeah. And again, the, 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 what we have now is also still pretty primitive. And anything that you would have that would be super futuristic would in, seem to require that you you put something actually inside your head, right? So whether that's uh, neurosurgery or um, putting something into the bloodstream that somehow gets inside your head, what, you know, an injectable... Um, you know, so, for instance, Elon Musk just uh, mentioned something called, uh, which he called neural lace, which is, I believe, a term that came from a, a sci-fi novel. I don't think it originates with him. I'm not a big science fiction reader. But he's got a... Uh, uh, he announced investment in a company called Neuro, Neuralink, which is looking looking at some advanced brain-computer interface, uh, based on the idea that you could get a with the with these new microelectrodes, you can get an injectable mesh, like a like a wire mesh that just integrates with the the brain, um, or very likely uh, just the cortex. Uh, and I believe this work has already been done in mice, um, and the mice are, you know, have survived and are living with with this mesh in their in their brains. And again, this is not research I'm close to at all. I mean, and he just announced this a couple of weeks ago. But um, in principle, you're you're talking about having uh, whether it's a mesh or whether it's it's magnetoelectric particles. I mean, some, something that is on site around individual neurons or assemblages of neurons, which can both r read out and input wirelessly signal from those neurons. So you know, just both, you know, putting your thoughts into the world by, you know, uh, influencing effectors, uh, robotic arms or cursors on screens or whatever it is, uh, and also influencing your mind based on whatever inputs you want to put in there from the world, whether that's... Until the Russians hack you and... Yeah, exactly. And well, it opens, it opens all of those yeah. concerns. You know, always it's, the Russians. Yeah. It's always the Russians. Yeah, yeah. The Chinese are... There's gambling. I think the Chinese people are responsible for a lot of the propaganda that makes us think about the Russians. <laughs> it's like, yeah, push it off on right. them. Push it off on them. Um, I'm prepared to blame the Russians for a lot at this point. Blame them all. Yeah. Um, what a slippery slope, though, for humans becoming cyborgs. I mean, we're, we're already oh, yeah. like some weird form of symbiote right now carrying our cell phones like it's a baby. You know, like you leave your cell phone at home like, oh, my God, I forgot the baby. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a very strange thing that we already have. 
and there's not a whole lot of steps between that and Snapchat glasses. Jamie's got the Snapchat glasses. Have you oh, ever really? seen those things? No, yeah, I didn't know they existed. Oh, they're very strange. They are. Uh, they have little cameras on them, and uh, oh. no, you got it. Go ahead, throw them on. And so, but now he Google, knows how to use them. Google Glass just was totally stillborn, oh, wow. right? I mean, I didn't, yeah, it but, didn't work. So he's 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 transmitting, or he's making a video right now with that left side. See how the left side oh, is spinning? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, what does Snapchat do? Like fifteen seconds? Ten seconds at a time, that little counter is just flashing was like the last three seconds, and you can hit it again, go another 20 seconds, or you can hold it and do like 30 seconds or something like that. Yeah, it's it's step it. one. Now, is, is that spinning just to alert the people you're looking at that you are recording I them? see it, too, so it, it's on an alert me, too, to let me know that my recording is done. Probably a little bit to let you know, too, but right. that's probably the only notification you know that I'm recording. And right it just posts. No, it doesn't post automatically, and now I have to link it to my phone and then post it from there. Oh, okay. The Google Glass thing made people very uncomfortable. I mean, uh, I, I tried a very early prototype. I have a, a good friend of mine who was a uh, executive at Google at the time, mm. and she got a hold of one of the really early ones that actually had to be tethered by a cord. And, uh, you know, you talk to it and swipe it. And I played with it a couple of times, and we used it once at a UFC weigh-in where I put it on and I broadcast from the weigh-in. It's, it's very, very odd, but it, make peop- it made people very uncomfortable. Like, you could see the difference. When they saw you with that thing on, all of a sudden there was all this apprehension that they're being you know, recorded or right. transmitted or, but how long, how long do we have where we're still people? Well, oh, long before you, you asked that question, our sense of privacy, I remember, I remember what it was like to be neurotic about the sound of your voice on a voicemail or, or on a, <laughs> an answering machine, right? Yeah. Like re-recording the outgoing message yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and right. just, just being worried about your vo- voice showing up in someone else's tape, Yeah, right? And now we, we're living in this, this panopticon surveillance society where you just assume you're on camera virtually every moment you're in public, although I guess people don't think about it all that much. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we're the norms around privacy shift just because we get so much value from having the data, ultimately. I guess, but it just seems also like there's just this inexorable pull towards this connection yeah. that we're going to have. It's it just seems like if you just if you take where we are now and sort of look at all the data points and extrapolate, it doesn't look good. It just well, but. It's both. It's both bad and good. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the fake news thing is horrible, but the ability to fact check, you know, to be able to pick up your phone and find out what's true, uh, is, has also never been better. So it's like we, we're both vulnerable in a way that we've never been, and we're we're empowered in a way that it's we've always never been. It's always been true about yeah. technological progress. Yeah. yeah. It just seems like there's a certain amount of time we have left before we give birth to some new thing. We're well, talking about just integrating ourselves biologically with, yes. with our machines. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also something that's uh, independent of us, some artificial intelligence independent of us. Well, yeah. you, you want to look for some fear around that. you got the right guy right Yeah, well, yeah, well I, we've I, talked I've ex- about I've it. I've expressed those fears here, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and uh, Josh Zepps uh, freaked me out this morning. He sent me some uh, articles about these self-driving trucks that are already going in Australia that are as big as a 767, and they're driving down the road by right. themselves. Yeah. With, with cargo, probably nuclear waste or something, you know, <laughs> just tooling down the road. But um, but people are so bad at driving that yeah. the, the robots just have to get reliably better than people, and then you'll just feel nothing but relief. They probably already are. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, they're. I think they probably are 
as far as I know from uh, what I hear from Tesla, that, that yeah, the the acts, the the man hours they have of people using the autopilot, and the autopilot's not at all perfect. Obviously, two people have died already from from using it badly, uh, but still, they they have something like uh, some millions of man hours of autopilot assisted driving, and I think that is has been safer than just pure ape. Did you see the driving. video of the guy who fell asleep in traffic in San Francisco? He's literally out cold, and his car's driving him on the highway. No, no, no. <laughs> it's kind of fantastic. Yeah. I mean, he's just some guy on his way to work, just passed out completely, mouth open, and people are filming him yeah. while his car's driving on the yeah, road. Yeah, and actually, probably the people filming him are doing the 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 more dangerous thing. You're right. Yeah. Well, texting. And driving drives me crazy. I mean, oh, yeah. to, to see it, like to, to to be in an Uber now, you can look around, you can see how many people are are texting. Yeah, uh, including your driver sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that drives me crazy. Yeah. I, here's a guy. Oh yeah, that, that dude's out cold. <laughs> His car's creeping along yeah. and stop and go traffic, and he is completely out cold. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, it works. The uh, autopilot works. Yeah, no, it yeah. does work. Um, yeah, texting and driving scares the shit out of me. That Pokemon Go thing, thank God that, that died off. But it stopped, yeah. I was driving on the highway, and there was a woman uh, to the left of us, and I noticed that she was being, her face was illuminated by her cell phone. So I look over, and she's playing Pokemon mm -hmm. as she's driving. So I guess, I don't know how Pokemon works, but I guess you pick up things, and as you're driving, you can get stuff. And so she was playing the game while she was on the highway, barely paying attention to the road, looking mm -hmm. at her phone. This is the argument for for robot drivers. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and also it it will open up when you are ultimately being driven safely by a car that you trust more than you trust yourself. Then just imagine the 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 information consumption entertainment options that open up there. You'll watch movies. You'll I mean, you'll, you'll you'll listen to podcasts. You'll get work done, and it'll become a space of we're not we're not going to miss having to pay attention to the road you know, I mean, I, you know maybe there's some people will want to drive recreationally for some reason but um it's it will just be a new space where you you'll, you'll, you won't believe that forty thousand people every year were dying because mm -hmm. we couldn't figure out how mm -hmm. to drive safely but isn't that a slippery slope like forty thousand oh, well that that's a great thing that forty thousand people are not going to die but the idea that you're going to stop people from driving a car. You're going to have to live with these 40,000 people. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I was going to say. But I was going to say, I mean, pretty much all the things that people do. Yeah. And then it's going to get down to why have people? I mean, ultimately, that's the I, when I look at the event horizon of artificial intelligence, it's why. Why would we? We're so flawed. We're not going to get our shit together by the time artificial intelligence is given birth to. Well, that, that all goes to what we build. I mean, if we build artificial intelligence that is independent of us and seems conscious and is more powerful than us, well, then we are, we have built a, in the limit, we have essentially built a god that we now have to be in relationship to. And hopefully that's a, a works out well for us. And it's very easy to see how it might not. I think there are even scarier cases than that, though. We could build something that has godlike power, but there's no reason to think it's conscious. It's just, it's just, it's no more conscious than our, our current computers, which is to say that intelligence and consciousness may be separable phenomena. That you, that you could intelligence can scale, but consciousness need not come along for the ride, and that 
for me is the worst case scenario because if we inherit all of the danger of 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 this the power of this system being misaligned with our interests we could build like something that's godlike in its power and yet uh we we could essentially be canceling the prospects of the evolution of consciousness because if this thing wipes us out the you know i think it's um Nick Bostrom, the philosopher who wrote a great book on this uh, entitled Superintelligence, uh, I think he calls this the, the Disneyland without children. I mean, like, basically, we could build this, this incredibly powerful, intelligent landscape uh, that continues to refine itself and, and, the, and its own powers uh, in who knows what ways, ways perhaps that are, that are unimaginable to us, and yet the, the lights aren't on. You know, there's, there's, there's nothing that it's like to be this machine or system of machines in the, way, in the way that it's probably nothing that it's like to be the internet right now. You think of all that's going on on the internet, yeah, I, you know, I don't think the internet is conscious of any of it right now. The question is, could the internet become conscious of what it's thinking? And um, I think there's no reason to think it couldn't. It's just we, we don't understand the, the physical basis of consciousness yet. The real question is, why would it do anything? I mean, if it doesn't have any of the biological motivations that people have to breed and to stay alive and to, you know, fight or flight and to be nervous and to, this desire to carry on our genes. I mean, if you really did build the ultimate supercomputer, artificial intelligence that was beyond our capacity for reason and understanding, wouldn't it just do nothing? Because everything is pointless. Well, no, because no, but, but we would do... We would program it. It would do whatever we asked it to do initially, right? right? We, we, I mean, things we program now have goals. Right, your your thermostat right. is trying to regulate the temperature in the room, um, and when it get, when it gets too warm, it kicks on the air, and it, when it gets too cold, it kicks on the heat. And I mean, that's just it. Ha- that's a goal, right? And um, so we would we are everything we build that's automated has goals explicitly programmed into it. And when you're talking about a truly intelligent machine. It will have it will discover goals that you have never programmed into it that are are intermediate to the goal that you have programmed. So if if the the goal of this machine is to you know pick up all the trash in this room, and you f- physically try to stop it, well then it's going to try to get around you to pick up the rest of the trash in the room, right? So it's it's you know I mean, this is probably already true of a, of a Roomba, right? I, I actually don't have a Roomba, but if you if you put something in the way of the Roomba, it's going to get around the thing you have put in its way so that it can get to the rest of the room. So that's an intermediate goal. And some of these goals need never have been explicitly thought about or represented, uh, which is to say programmed into it. And yet they, they're, they're formed by, by the fact that the thing has a long-term goal. And one of the, one of the concerns is that we could build something that has a long-term goal, that, uh, build something that's super powerful, that has a long-term goal, which in principle is benign, right? It's like, it's, this is something we want. And yet it could discover instrumental goals that are deeply hostile to what we want. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the thing doesn't have common sense, right? We haven't figured out how to build common sense into the machine. So, I mean, the, 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 there's just cartoon examples of this kind of thing, but like well, one example that... Elon used when he first was expressing fears about this. It's just like, if you built a machine, the, the only goal of which was was to cancel spam, right? No more. We don't want. To, we, want we want no more spam. Get rid of the spam. Well, an easy way to get rid of spam is just kill all the people, right? Now that's a crazy <laughs> thing to think, 
but it's not in, unless you've built unless you've closed the door to that intermediate goal. Uh, there's no reason to think that a super powerful machine couldn't form such a goal. My question would be: If this super powerful machine has the ability to create new super powerful machines, would it use the same mandate? Would it would it still try to follow the original programming, or would it realize that our original programming is only instrumental to the success of the human race, and it might think the human race is ridiculous and preposterous, and why, why not just program something that it thinks? is the ultimate intelligence, something beyond our capacity for reason and understanding now. And that thing, I would wonder, in the absence of any sort of biological motivations, in the absence with, I mean, do you think of all the things that we do, I mean, you, you, you break it down to what motivates people to get out of bed, what motivates people to do good, what mo our sense of community, uh, the desire to breed, uh, the mm. social status, all these different things that motivate people to do things. Remove all of those, and what actions would it take, and why? Well, I think I think you want to build it in a way that is focused on our well-being. And so, for instance, I had Stuart Russell on my podcast. He's a computer scientist at at Berkeley, who, um, unlike many computer scientists, takes this problem really seriously and, and has thought a lot about it. And in his lab, I believe they're working on. A, a way of thinking about the safety that is, that is open-ended and flexible without, without pretending we have any of the right answers in the near term or, or likely to have them. So you want to build a system that wants to know what you want, right, at each point. Like, so that's tracking what humanity wa wants in terms of its goals and wants to stay aligned with whatever it is yeah. we want, um, wants to mo wants to learn from what we seem to want based on our behavior, but um, and so there could be some kind of clarifying function where where we you know we can get our priorities more aligned in dialogue with the super intelligent machine. But the uh, the bottom line is, it always wants to it, it it doesn't think it knows what we want, and it continually wants to keep approximating better and better what we want. And so, you, the, from my point of view, the most crucial thing is you, you always want the door to remain open to the statement, wait, 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 that's not what I wanted, right? Like, you, right. you, you want to be in the presence of this godlike superpower that will always take direction from you when you say, wait, 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 that's not going in the right direction. And so the fear is we could build something that is is uh, just not amenable to being controlled in that way. Is it not the case that computer scientists are starting to come around to the idea that there's real danger, uh, there's dangerous potential in, in, in AI? I mean, I was listening to you when you talked mm -hmm. to Will McCaskill a few weeks ago, who was saying, you know, we, it, was, it was just a few years from starting to think about how to split the atom to actually having a bomb. Um, are they not coming around the idea that that these that technology can progress much faster than we think of? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a whole spectrum of the people who think that this is never going to happen, or it's so far away that thinking about it now is completely irrational. To people who are super worried and, and think that huge changes are imminent, and so it's it's just the, the spectrum. I'm with the latter. Yeah. No. As am I. 
Uh, yeah, well, my concern is not even with the initial construction, like the initial AI. My concern is with what the AI creates. If we give the AI yeah. ability to improve upon itself and look at our irrational thoughts and how we've programmed itself to support the human race, and then it might go, well, why, why the fuck would I do that? Like, you guys are ridiculous. Like, this is a new life form. This is a new, we, we've given birth to some incredibly potent new thing that we think of it as artificial. But I mean, is it really? It's just a form of life. It's a form of life that we've created. Human beings have sort of, the, 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 the analogy I always use is that we're some sort of an electronic caterpillar giving birth to some spectacular butterfly that we're mm. not even aware of while we're mm. building our cocoon. We're just doing it. I mean, is the caterpillar fully conscious of what it's doing when mm. it makes that cocoon? Probably not, but it just does. And there's plenty of uh, examples of that in nature of something that's doing something, that's going through some metamorphosis that's completely unconscious. My worry would be, I guess it's not even really a worry. It's more like looking at the the possibility of the AI improving upon itself and making a far better version than we could create, like almost instantaneously, right? I mean, isn't yeah. that, if you give it the ability to be autonomous and you give it the ability to, to innovate and to, to try to figure out what's a better way around things and what's a better way to program things and then make its own version of what it is, it's going to be spectacular. I mean, it really will be just, I mean, it's obviously just talking shit, but really would be a god. I mean, you're talking about something that if we give it the ability to create, we give it the ability to think, reason, rationalize, and then build, build something better. I mean, yeah. but, and, and by build, you should be thinking more software than hardware. Right. I mean, there, there's obviously there's anything is possible. Anything that can be built with intelligence can be built with intelligence. So you could be talking about armies of robots and nanotechnology and everything else that's that, that is the, the, the staple of the, the sci-fi scare scenario. But um, more likely and certainly faster and ultimately more powerful, you're talking about something that can rewrite its own code, improve. I mean, it, it, it's the code that is, that is dictating the intelligence. And so you're talking about something that could be, for the longest time, invisible and just happening on the Internet. Right, you're talking about code that could could be put into financial markets, right, which could be built to be self-modifying, right, and it's then it's already out in the wild. It's not it's not sequestered in some air-gapped computer in a lab. It's out there and it's changing itself. Now that would be a totally irresponsible thing to do from a from a uh, you know, a software designer's point of view, I, th I think, at this point. But um, there's just no question that we're going to get to a place where, um, I mean, it's either it's e it's e either will be the province of one lab that gets there first, or it will be open source. But you're talking about software, right? Us figuring out how to write better better software, which um, becomes the basis of general intelligence and then where that gets put and what gets done with that that's that's the the question isn't it a real question of also the race to see who can come up with one first i mean once once the idea gets put out there like the idea of the nuclear bomb hmm. i mean obviously no one in their right mind thinks it's a good idea to make a nuclear bomb well, but that, that story is especially uh, uh, sobering because i may forget the the details. I think it was, I could, I could have this backwards. I, I think it was Rutherford 
there were two famous physicists involved. It was either Rutherford who said, "We're never going to unlock the, the, the." Um, I think yeah, I think it was Rutherford gave a, a talk saying that we're never going to unlock the the energy that we now know to be in the atom. And Leo Zillard the next day produced the the uh, the equations that unlocked it. Right, <laughs> the next um, yeah, day, the next day, but, and, and in direct response to this announcement, like okay, let's just we, this, that's bullshit. And he, the next morning, woke up and and produced that, the, the produced the math that gave us the the atomic bomb. Uh, so it's it can happen really fast. And, and if you want to get those details exactly right, listen to what Stuart Russell said on my podcast. Well, Oppenheimer, in like a really ironic twist, wasn't he a Buddhist? Mm. Was he? No, he was a fan of of um, Hinduism. Technically, I mean, he was he taught himself Sanskrit apparently in three months. Uh, one never knows how much this is exaggerated, but the, uh, his... To his, what end? His, his publicist will tell you that he taught himself Sanskrit yeah. in three months to read the Bhagavad Gita, well, so, quote, so, which is the, the one of the, the texts of, of Hinduism. The quote that he gave out yeah. as the first bomb was tested. Yeah, I have become death, destroyer of worlds. I am become worlds, death, yeah. destroyer of worlds. Yeah. yeah, what the... F- and then when you hear him say it, it's even more creepy because yeah. you can see the sort of remorse. And have you seen that? No. Yeah, well, also, oh, the, 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 the photos. Get the photo. I mean, every photo of Oppenheimer. He looks tortured. Uh, he, he just looks haunted. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, he was hanging out. It's weird to see him with this general. I was watching some documentary on the creation of the atom bomb, and he was, uh, you know, he's hanging out with these generals as they're probably Curtis Lemay. Yeah. Yeah, and you see the two of them together, and you're like, what a bizarre pairing. Like this one monkey needs this other genius to make this bomb so he can drop it on these people. And the guy realizes that if he doesn't make it, someone's going to make it and mm-hmm. it could be dropped on them. You know, well, that, and that's that's the thing. We are we were genuinely in a race condition there yeah. and we and we didn't know how close the Nazis were. It turns out that they weren't as close as we feared. But, yeah, just imagine Hitler having gotten there first. Right. With yeah. the help of Heisenberg and, and others. Play it, Jamie. He knew the world would not be the same. like a happy dude yeah. what a what a burden yeah but, but it's actually it, when you read the history of that that effort the manhattan project and the trinity test it is super sobering because there was they move forward in the, in a context of real uncertainty about what was going to happen i mean there were they in terms of the yield of the first bomb um there was a, a a range, I think, of a a hundredfold difference of opinion of what they were going to get yeah. once this thing went off. Um, and there were some people who still placed some possibility 
uh, on the prospect of it igniting the atmosphere yeah. and just canceling <laughs> yeah. all of life, right? Now, they had, they had spent a lot of time to, I mean, they did something like due diligence where they were, uh, many of them were confident it, it wouldn't, but that was not without, beyond the realm of possibility for some of the people working on it. And um, so we, we have shown a propensity for taking possibly existential risks to develop new technology because there's there's a reason to develop it and in this case the destruct the destructive potential is so obvious because it's all destructive potential i mean we're we're building the biggest bombs we possibly can build and so it it's just it's not difficult to think about the danger it's all danger right um, and these bombs you know now getting in the hands of the wrong people with ai it's so seductive because if you looked at if it looked at in 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 one light it's just all upside i mean there's nothing better than intelligence there's nothing more intrinsically desirable than intelligence and so to get more of it is seems an intrinsic good and so it, it takes an extra step to say well wait a minute this could in fact be the most dangerous thing we've ever done and you have to you have to you have to spend a lot of time fighting that that ideological battle with people who just think, no, this is just, this is just all upside. This mm. is what could be, what could go wrong? <sighs> you're just, you're just scaremongering. You're just, you've, you've seen too many Terminator movies. <laughs> uh, is that even possible? <sighs> too to many, see uh, too many? No. Not, not with the first. The first was good. Yeah. The first was very so good. First, uh, second was good. Uh, there's one in there that I don't think I've seen all of. Um, there were three or there were four? I don't know. I think, I think it was, I think... I lost I've, touch after the second. I've seen two. Yeah. I haven't seen any more than two. Yeah. Um. I, I don't know. I just. I feel like it's be, because of the race. Because of the idea that there's a race to get to it. It seems mm -hmm. like it's inevitable that someone actually does create it. And much like the atomic bomb, it'll probably launched, probably be launched, without a true understanding of what its potential is. That's my fear. I'm, yeah. I'm terrified of it. I think about it all the time. I, I, I step back sometimes and I look at like the city of Los Angeles, look at the skyline, and all the lights go off, and I'm like, this this is all new. Like this has only been here for a few hundred years. Like this this there was nothing here, 1700. There was nothing. This was mm -hmm. nothing. Now look at it. It's all lit up, and there's a gigantic grid you see from the sky. Like what are we looking at 300 years from now? Like what are, what are we looking at with all these things that we're feverishly attempting to build and create? Yeah. Well, the our dependence on the net is sobering. I mean, just just forget about all of these highfalutin fears of of rogue AI. Just just we don't have a backup for the internet. I mean, if the internet goes down, what happens in the real world? A lot that is that is very difficult to recover from. You know, I mean, just what happens to your money, right? I mean, what is money when there is no right? Or, or just just imagine some malicious code. Just destroying the record of of uh, money, you know, just like getting into the banking system, right? So it's like you you have then have to go look for the paperwork you may or may not have in your desk to argue that you have a certain amount of money because you know all those bits got scrambled, right? Um, and we need some. I mean, all of this is like just there's, there's so many aspects of this, but the fact that you can now credibly fake audio, right? So someone can listen, sample, you know, five minutes of this podcast 
and then produce a conversation we've never had in voices exactly like our own, and those edits will no longer be discernible. I mean, we're basically there now, and we're almost there with video, right, where you could just have our mouths moving in the correct way. Well, again, I go to Snapchat, these crazy Snapchat filters. I don't know if you know about these, but my daughter, pull up the one of my daughter being Abraham Lincoln. I mean, it's fucking crazy. I mean, it's really rudimentary right now, but my six-year-old loves it. She thinks it's hilarious, and she constantly uses it all the time. Like, she just like, can I play with your phone? And she grabs my phone, and then she starts doing these little videos. Like, somehow or another, their little brains, like, sync up immediately with the technology. Where if I gave it to my mom, she'd be like, I don't even know what this is. What do I do? (laughs) That six-year-old could figure it out like that. Check this out. Four squirrels seven years ago. Oh, I know you had been pooping in your pants today. Thank you. I lost my tooth. If, if I showed if I showed this to my daughters, uh, you would just never hear from them again. It would be yeah, the, that's the, the it's like the most captivating thing. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. is obviously black and white, and she's being silly, and yeah. it's really obvious, and oh, it's no. fake. But man, but how far? I mean, this is a six-year-old ad- girl thing in the world yeah. who yeah. looks like Abraham yeah. Lincoln. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. mimicking the voice. You can't like you see her her mouth. You can't discern where her mouth ends. And Abraham Lincoln's yeah. face begins. Right. But here, but what's so insidious about this technology I'm talking about now is that someone can fake. I mean, it's, it's basically what is already true of Photoshop, yeah. right? Where you can't tell, you have to be an expert to tell whether the person was really standing next to Donald Trump at the time because they could have just been put there but right. with, with expert an expert use of Photoshop. But now we're talking about being able to produce content where... You know, you are saying the thing that completely destroys your reputation, but it's pure, it's just fake news. It's just right. fiction. And so we need, I mean, I, I don't know what the fix for this is. Uh, you know, I've just spec, and this is, again, something I know very little about, but I've clearly something like the blockchain has to be a way of anchoring each piece of digital content so that, that there's like a chain of custody where you see exactly where this came from in a way that's not fakeable. And so, if, to, to take you know your podcast an example, if someone is producing a clip that purports to be from your podcast, where you're saying something insane, um, it there just has to be a clear fingerprint digitally, which right. shows whether that came from you and Jamie, or whether this you know came from some you know Macedonian hacker who just decided to screw with you. Yeah, but there's not. No, no, I know, but that like, clearly we need that. We need that like, yeah. tomorrow because yeah. the, the technology is here to produce totally fake content, which is. I am just, worried about that. I'm also worried about the idea that someone anywhere is completely in charge and knows what's going on. You know, I always point to you remember that guy that went on stage with Obama and pretended to be a, a sign language translator? Yeah, that, that was <laughs> the really. Fact that this guy that, that was South Africa or something yeah. like that. I believe it was. Was yeah, it? I. I uh, that sounds right, but I forget where it was. Um, but I, but yeah, sure he was, it, it. I mean, that was amazing because it's just so few people read sign language yeah. that yeah. you know. It was, Wasn't it around a Mandela thing? Uh, I, I, I don't. Re- yeah. yeah, was it? I don't remember the the details, but I remember thinking this moment. fucking guy is three feet away from the president. He was three feet away from the president, and you would think that they had vetted everyone out. So here's this guy talking, and that guy is just completely making things up. He has yeah. no idea. <laughs> yes. He has yeah, no idea how to do sign language. And that, that, you know, that can happen. 
There was another instance where uh, a guy had gotten in an elevator with Obama. Yeah, a security guard, yeah, with a gun. With a gun. Yeah. L- loaded gun in, in an elevator with Obama. Nobody screened him. It's just people aren't really on the ball, you know? There was a bit from my last comedy special about the uh, guy that broke into the White House, about there was a, a woman guarding the front door by herself, and right. they had shut the alarm off because it kept going off, so they said, how the fuck it, just shut it off. And then there was a guy who was on the lawn who was supposed to be, uh, he had canines, supposed to be guarding the lawn. He took his earpiece out to talk to his girlfriend on the cell phone. He had a backup uh, walkie-talk because they have a backup one, but he left mm. that in his locker. So it's like all these steps, and this guy just hit the perfect sweet spot where he hopped the fence, ran the whatever hundred yards plus to get to the White House, got to the door, it was unlocked, got right. through it. There was a girl by herself, threw her to the ground, and just ran through the White House and was in there for five, ten minutes. And did, he had a knife, right? Yeah, he had yeah. a knife. Yeah. He was basically trying to... He was, it was basically a suicide by cop situation because they had right. caught him. This is what's really hilarious. When people think that the government is watching out for you, they weren't even watching this guy. And listen to what this guy did. He got arrested. They pulled him over, I believe it was less than three months before that, with 800 rounds of ammunition. He had two rifles, a shotgun, an axe, and a machete, hmm. and a map of Washington with a fucking X where the White House is. And they let him go. <laughs> yeah. so, I guess, I, 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 they have, there has to be a, a crime there. But they weren't even watching that guy. Yeah. Like, the idea well, that they're uh, watching you. What, they, but we're not built as, as species for perfect vigilance. That's so not perfect. I mean, that's so ridiculously but, but I'm, imperfect. I'm thinking about even the TSA. Right. You yeah. know, we, it's just, we're just... Uh, uh, we're just not built for that. But yeah. tw- Twitter, Twitter can confound even the perfect vigilance. I mean, just look what happened at the Oscars. I mean, that that was just you know their only job is to get those envelopes right. right. You know, right. you got two people with yeah. the locked briefcases, yeah, yeah. and one guy starts tweeting and you know produces the wrong envelope. Yep. I mean, it's just is it, that what happened? He was yeah, tweeting. Yeah, yeah, he was tweeting. They, they, they uh, I mean, this is it's brutal. But he took a photo of I forget what actress but clearly he was i mean they have he he then deleted the photo but you know, p- people recovered it um yeah he he took a shot of somebody i don't know charlie's theron or somebody who was walking backstage and put it on his twitter feed and then that the very next moment was the moment when he had to hand over the right envelope <laughs> and he just handed over the the, the envelope for the best actress <sighs> yeah. but that, I mean, their only job is to get this straight right and they're, I mean, they're just safeguarding the envelopes it's, so it's all adorable yeah but I, yeah. there's some there's something i really enjoy about the folly of people that uh, that's one of the main things that i worry about with ai that are the things that we find cute about us being ridiculous like that, or like the sign language guy, or any of these things. But that, but that's the thing that computers are really good at. I mean, once computers get good at this sort of thing, they, yeah. But they, we're programming them, right? No, but we we can we can program them to to fill in the gaps for our own stupidity. Uh, you know, yeah. you know, we we want we what we want to do is automate repetitive behavior right. and error detection that we know we're not good at. Right. So, I mean, the moment you have a a TSA screening robot that that doesn't get distracted, I mean, th- these machines don't get distracted, right? They yeah. don't they don't get hungry. They don't have to take right. bathroom breaks. They don't. They're not looking at the person who's looking at them 
and and get, getting captivated by some social glitch, right? So that it all if you have a bomb screening robot, that's all it will do, and it will be better once it you know whatever whatever the visual signature or of a, of a bomb is when you're talking about looking for one in a bag. Once computers get better at that than people, they will be just they will be reliable in a way that people can never be and that we know that about ourselves so that's we want to we want to outsource all of that stuff and, and i mean driving is the perfect example you know you don't you don't have self-driving cars that are falling asleep or you know reading billboards while they're driving at 80 miles an hour and um and so we want that and and but the scary the scary stuff is when it can change itself that that's a principle that would allow it to kind of escape from our control, uh, or we just we build something where we haven't anticipated the consequences, and and the incentives are wrong. The in, the incentives are, are not aligned to make us prudent in the development of that. And and what and an arms race is the worst case for that because the, the incentives are to get to the end zone as quickly as you can because the the guy next to you is is doing the same right, right. and. You don't know how you don't know whether he's ahead of you or behind you, right? And, right. And and it's a winner-take-all scenario Absolutely. because the amount of wealth that will go to the winner of this race, if things work, if if this person doesn't or if this group doesn't destroy the world, is unimaginable. I mean, it's just we're talking about a, a level of of um, kind of windfall profits that we just haven't seen in any other domain. Well, a perfect example is the creation of the atomic bomb. I mean, look at 70 years from the creation of the atomic bomb to today, which is a, literally a blip in human history, just a tiny little blink of an eye. And then the United States emerges as the greatest superpower the world's ever known. And that's going to be directly attributed to those bombs that were dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, that from there on, that's where everything takes off. When you look at human history, if you, you look at us from a thousand years from now, it's very likely that they look at that moment and they go, this is the emergence of the American empire. Yeah. But this is so much bigger than that because because the bombs, the power in the bomb was just just the, the implicit threat that you might use them if you get pissed off, right? But right. you can't do anything with the bombs. Here, we're talking about the resource that does everything. We're right. talking about intelligence. We're talking about, the, we're talking about the cure for cancer. We're talking about the best virtual reality entertainment. We're talking about uh, the, 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 I mean, everything. Everything that a human being, I mean, once you, you're talking about general human intelligence and beyond, you're talking about now having access to, suddenly having access to the smartest people who have ever lived, who never sleep, who never get tired, who never get distracted, because now they're machines, and the smartest people who have never lived. Right, people who mm -hmm. are a thousand times smarter than those people and getting smarter every hour, right? And what are they going to do for you when they're your slaves, right? Because now you're talking about because <sighs> you don't have to feed these people, right? right. These, they're just working for you. Just like how powerful would you suddenly be if you had ten thousand of the smartest people in the world working for you full time? They don't have to be fed. They never get disgruntled. They don't need contracts. And they just want to do whatever Joe Rogan wants to do and get done, and you just you flip a switch and that's your company, right? Um, that's some version of that's going to happen. The question is, is it going to happen in a way that where 
we get this massive dislocation in, in wealth inequality where all of a sudden someone's got a, a company and products and a business model which obviates you know 30% of the american workforce in, in, in over the span of you know 3 months um, or you have some some political and 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 economic and ethical context in which we start sharing the wealth with everyone and this is this is again this is the best case scenario this is when we don't destroy ourselves inadvertently by by producing something that's that's hostile to our interests. Daniel looked terrified. Yeah, no, this is this is what hanging out with Sam does. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Just listen, we yeah. get to a high yeah. spot, we get to a high spot, we get a pitcher of margaritas and we just watch this whole thing. Yeah. Look, we're not going to make it anyway. <laughs> None of this room is going to live forever. When I hang out with Sam, usually I, his wife's there, so it's like the conversation is a little less Tempered. apocalyptic, no. yeah. Yeah. Well, she keeps me grounded. Yeah, she. It's actually awesome because when she's there, she's like just tooling on him, and um, he giggles and stuff like that. It's like a completely different Sam than the guy who's uh, under, like being an undertaker here and telling you about how we're all going to die from AI. Yeah, she's. Uh, she keeps me honest, but um, I mean, the, the the truth is, is it's not. I mean, I'm I'm cautiously hope. I mean, this is. There's no way to stop. I mean, there's right. no there's no break to pull, right? So it's like this is. I mean, it's the inevitability you were describing before. I, yeah. I mean, we're moving toward this thing because intelligence is the best thing in the world. I mean, intelligence is the thing that allows us to solve every problem we have or don't know we have. I mean, we discover we're continually discovering new problems, and the question is, what are we going to do? The, there's a you know some global pandemic arrives, and the challenge is. Do you find a vaccine for this thing or not, right? Only intelligence solves that problem for us. We either, we either have the data and we can't interpret it. We have to get the, we have to design the experiments to get the data. Um, and it's, so it's, there's no question of us deciding, well, we've got, we're, we're just going to stick with the intelligence we've got. Mm. I mean, we're just, we're not going to do that. We can't. We yeah. can if there's other people that are working on it. It's exactly a, right because that's just too much power. Even if even if we decided that as a you know American policy, you know we we're not going to let China and North Korea and Singapore and Iran and Israel and all these other countries do it for us. So um, find a high spot right above Denver. <laughs> Big bucket of margaritas, <laughs> or 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 the meditation that the, yeah, the, exactly. that has, that yeah. has helped. Uh, yeah, well, that's that definitely will help you while human beings are a real thing. Yes, although I wonder if you know uh, the getting enough people meditating might uh, improve the quality of whatever gets created in the AI community. In other words, if you have people who are a little bit more sane as a consequence of meditation, then maybe uh, the people designing these products, the, the, the rather these. Uh, I don't know if product's the right word, this stuff, then somehow the stuff is better. Well, I think it's especially relevant for the other side of that, which is when you, I mean, in the near term, we clearly have a, a, an employment problem. I mean, we, we, there, there are jobs that will go away that are not coming back, and it, this is a perennial problem where people need to find meaning in life, yep. but... but We've always had it hasn't been such a pressing problem for thousands of years because there's there's always been so much to do just to survive. Right now we're gonna in the ideal case we'll get to a place where there's actually much less that has to be done because we have machines that do it 
and we have to, we have seen the wisdom of mitigating wealth inequality to some acceptable level where so every so all all boats begin to rise with this tide to some degree uh, see so whether it's universal basic income or some so we have some mechanism to spread the wealth around but then there's there's the real question of what, what do, you do you do with do your life yeah, yeah yeah so what do you think people will do that would, that's the easiest one it's not but it's not me. so easy because people well people are confused people well, those think, people need to get their shit together i mean that that's giving someone free time but find a hobby man i mean there's a lot of stuff to do if see, you told me that i never had to work again mm-hmm. and i would just have to find things to do all day and all my food and everything would be taken care of that would be the easiest choice I'd have ever made in my life. I would just pursue things. I would just learn how to speak a language. I'd learn how to play an instrument. I'd uh, practice archery more. I'd do jujitsu more. I don't. Uh, that seems to me so ridiculous. That seems to me that could be solved really easy. I, I feel the exact same way, but I think that the I'm not con- convinced. I feel like I could fill endless swaths of of free time with a, a number of things that I'm interested in. And, including but not limited to meditation or just hanging out with my two-year-old. However, I'm not sure that the vast uh, majority of humans are like that. They just need guidance. That seems to be the be- the easiest thing to solve. They just let them know. Go find something fun to do. Go start running up hills, man. Go uh, mm-hmm. take up Frisbee golf. Just, <laughs> just, just, just shit to do. Well, I, There's I think a lot of shit to do. My concern is that more and more it will it will take the form of being merely entertained. So it just it'll right. be we'll like plug the, into the, some VR. The last scene of Wally. You I know, never, when, I never saw you Wally, the movie yeah. Wally. No, I uh, never watched. You know, it, okay, no. guys, uh, you should maybe pull this, pull this up. But the there the in in Wally, it's a dystopian future where everybody's riding around in those little you know jazzy. Um, uh, uh, Mobile wheelchairs that people sit sit in now. Oh yeah, and, Disneyland. Uh, yes, and they're also oh. they they've got huge buckets of soda and like turkey legs and mm-hmm. and f- draped like kind of hooked over the back of the of their motorized vehicle is a monitor at the front which is entertaining them. So they're just obese and entertained and immobile or mobile but not actually ambulatory. It's mm-hmm. Disneyland. Well, we're, what's happened? I mean, in our lifetime, the the smartphone has made it virtually impossible to be bored. Like, I, boredom used to be a thing. Like, you'd, yeah. you'd, you'd, you'd be sitting in the the waiting room of a doctor, right? And they've, they have crappy magazines, and then you're just sitting there. And, so if you, and if you didn't know how to meditate, you had to confront this sense of, I'm bored, right? Now, what you disco- one thing you discover when you learn how to meditate is boredom is just an inability to pay attention to anything. And, and you can pay attention. Once you learn to pay attention to anything, even something seemingly boring as your breath, it suddenly becomes incredibly interesting. So so focused attention is intrinsically pleasurable. But boredom is the state of, of kind of scattered attention looking for something that's worth paying attention to. And yet now with technology, you're never going to be bored again. I mean, I've got, I, I have at least 10 years worth of reading on my phone. Right, right. So it's like if I'm I'm standing in line, like I, I'm constantly pulling this thing out. And but is that a bad thing? Well, it's it, it's potentially a bad thing because you, for I mean, just to take this example of of you know one interesting insight you get when you learn to meditate, um, it's incredibly powerful to cut through the illusion of boredom. I mean, to realize that boredom is is not is not something. I mean, you you can become interested in the feeling of boredom, and the moment you do, it 
you know, bites its own tail and disappears. I mean, it's just like it's there is no such thing as boredom when you're paying close attention to your experience. I, I think the bad thing about the hyper stimulation that we get through our phone and, and all of technology is that we have lost the ability to just sit back and, uh, for lack of a less cliched term, be. And we're, we're just constantly stimulated. And that means we have trouble paying attention when we're holding our kid in our lap and reading him or her a book, or we find ourselves without our technology for a moment. There was a recent study that asked people, uh, would you rather be alone with your thoughts or get electric shocks? And a lot of people took the electric shocks. And I actually think that is a fundamental problem uh, in terms of not being able to get in touch with the raw and kind of powerful, although obvious, fact that you're alive and, and that you exist. Right, but don't you think those people are idiots? I mean, you don't want electric shock. You don't want. I won't take electric shock. You're not going to take an electric shock. Like, well, this is, we're, we're talking I mean, about this, children. This is the dude with no, the no, Snapchat glasses. But, he uh, might take Jamie, yeah, yeah. Jamie's on the ball. I, I don't want those glasses either. But you, but you know what I'm saying? He doesn't use the glasses. Okay. He just explores it because it's fascinating. But, but you know what I'm talking about? I mean, we're not talking about rational people. We're talking about lowest common denominator people that would no, take no, an electric no. shock. Oh, no, no. Wait, I, I, you would take an electric shock? No, no, no. I'm just thinking this is a study of, uh, It's not, they're not just picking idiots. I right, think but who are they asking and how, what, how are they phrasing the but, question? But it also doesn't have to be conscious. So, for instance, we, we willingly grant our attention to things which retrospectively we can judge produce more or less nothing but pain for us. Like so it's what? like, well, like, I mean, I, I, I'm continually thinking about this and rethinking about this with respect to social media. Like, I, so when I, like, what comes to, what's the effect on my mind of looking at my Twitter ad mentions? Well, I right? wondered that when you were asking right. people what kind of questions they should, yeah. we should ask well, 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 some, on this podcast. Yeah, well, some, sometimes it's incredibly useful. <laughs> but I, mean, I was thinking, that, what are yeah. you doing? Yeah. <laughs> You're opening well, yourself up to the green frogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, right. But... <laughs> I mean, I've had both kinds of experience. I, I've I've had people send me articles that I would have never found otherwise. Yeah. They're fascinating, super useful, and it's just uh, it's like this is the perfect use of this technology. And then again, then I then I get this river of green frogs and and weirdness. Um, but the so but the to the previous point, I pay attention to something for long stretches of time rather than doing something I know is good for me with my attention. I kind of spin the roulette wheel with with Twitter and rather often there's just this kind of toxic undercurrent of of you know mental activity that it produces in me that um, I mean it doesn't make me feel I mean it doesn't equip me to do anything better in my life it doesn't make me feel any better about myself or other people I mean if, if, if it has any net effect it's it basically grabbed you know a dozen dials that I can just sort of dimly conceive of in my mind and turn them all a little bit toward the negative. You know, I feel a little bit worse about myself, a little bit worse about my career, a little bit worse about people, a little bit a little bit worse about the future, a little bit worse about the fact that I just was doing this when I could have been playing with my kid or or writing or thinking productive thoughts or meditating or doing anything so that I know is good. The, you still do this. You I, yeah, I, I, still, I don't I still understand check, your Twitter check. compulsion. Yeah, what? you um, I, I, you argue with people. Yeah, I found that fascinating. Yeah. You, periodically, you, yeah, not, you, not periodically. <laughs> no, no, I go, I go, I go for, I go for weeks without arguing with people. Well, but also you argue with people on your podcast. Well, yeah, but that's right. That's, but that's different. That's no, different. no, no. But I mean, it's just on the podcast. You'll also be talking about people you're arguing with on Twitter, or yeah. uh, so the arguing 
is a part of your... Well, I get trolled a lot yeah. on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I get trolled. I mean, you you have guests. You have guests who come on your podcast and savage me on the podcast and then troll me endlessly on Twitter. And, you and mean I, like Abby? Abby Martin? Well, she was... No, she doesn't troll. I mean, she... She, 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 she hates me, but she, I don't, I, she I, haven't, know you. I haven't noticed her trolling me, but no, you, if you, you got in a room with her, everybody would calm down. She just has, there's people that have radical misconceptions of who you are. Yeah. You, you, I'm sure That's you true. heard the Josh Zepps, uh, Pat Oswalt thing or Pat no. Oswalt. Don't, don't listen to it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. he, he went off the rails. Okay. Pat yeah. went off the rails like like Hannibal style. Are you thinking of uh, Andy Kindler? Oh, yes. I okay. I'm sorry. Did I say Pat Oswalt? I'm so sorry. That's good. So sorry. How so, did so, I connect so Pat, Pat and, and I are Yeah, Patton's great. Good. Well, uh, Patton's very smart and very reasonable. As is Andy for the most most of the time. But so so this but Andy's kind of I, I discovered this very late. I, I did a so I kept seeing this guy. I didn't know who he was. I kept seeing him in my Twitter feed. Andy Kindler. Andy Kindler. And then I realized, wait a minute. He is actually. He seems to be. I mean, he's an established comic. He seems to be friends. With people who I really respect, who I don't know, like, you know, like, I mean, Sarah Silverman, who I, I don't know personally. I mean, we've, we've you know, communicated a little bit on Twitter, but it's like, I, I, I'm just nothing but a pure fan of, of Sarah. Uh, Jim Gaffigan, other big comics who I, t- I totally respect. I don't know how close he is with these people, but he basically, he has endless energy for vilifying me as a racist and as a bigot, right? I mean, he's just, he's a madman. And I discovered, so I did a search of his Twitter feed. And he's got hundreds and hundreds of tweets where he's he's going after me in the most retail way. So, for instance, like I I, I tweeted out, uh, can anyone recommend 500 seat halls in all these cities? And I think your friend is, is Duncan Trussell a friend yes. of yours. Okay, so Duncan wrote back saying, oh yeah, DM me. I've got a great place in Boston or something. And then Andy Kindler jumped into that thread, talking to Duncan, saying, don't help him, Duncan. He's a bigot. Right. So like he's like this is Andy Kindler's just got endless energy for this. And then I then I looked at, uh, you know, what he was doing and he had been doing it for years and I wasn't aware of it. <laughs> to, just to you? Just to me and Bill Maher. He hates Bill Maher. But then you've got another guy uh, on this podcast, um, Hunter Matz. Uh, Matt, okay. I had him on once. OK, so he was on here and I actually had to go back and watch what he said here because I had been getting so much of this on Twitter. And I mean, it's incredibly common. People are tweeting at me saying. Why won't you debate Hunter? Is it, is it, it's Matt's, right? Yeah. Okay. Why won't you debate Hunter Matt? So I went back and looked at what he said here. You know, half of it, frankly, didn't make any sense. Um, but his attacks uh, on me on Twitter are the most juvenile. It's like the idea that he thinks this is a way he's going to establish a conversation with me by sending me two tweets and then sending me 400, which say, you're scared to debate me, right? Yeah. Um, it's crazy. I mean, it's I think Hunter's crazy on the behavior. spectrum. I don't very, know. Very, 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 very smart guy, but taking a terrible, socially retarded approach to establishing a debate. And I, yeah. I've contacted Brian Callen about this, and Brian Callen contacted Hunter about this. And was like, "What the fuck are you doing?" And he continues it's, to do it's, it. It's, it's crazy like, behavior. Yeah. He, he said he wouldn't do it anymore, and then he did oh, more. I mean, it's every got, every time I look, I, I I see him somewhere in there. But then, then there's there's this guy Mike Cernovich who who's actually has effects on the real world. I mean, Mike Cernovich is, again, he's a Twitter troll. Um, again, one of these other guys who's challenged me to debate him, and I, you know, I mean, there's, there's no, there's absolutely no possibility you of need a profitable to, you dialogue. You need to spend him. less time on Twitter. Yeah, listen but, to you, no, but, but Cernovich just, was just on 60 Minutes. I mean, he's like, he's in the world, uh, and he's affecting people's perception of Trump. I'm just talking about your Trump. psyche. Oh, yeah. Well, 
for yeah, sure, I, right? <laughs> I, yes. So they could come back. It's, it's not. Yeah. It's not. It's not. The nine times out of ten, looking just makes me think. Um, I mean, it's an illusion because if you met most of these people, if you if they came up to you at a conference or at a you know book signing or so you know after a gig of yours, and you saw you had more information about them, you saw all of the, you know, all, all, the, crazy. Of, all of the crazy coming out, um, you would say, I don't have to pay any attention. There's no reason to pay attention to what this guy is saying. Whereas on Twitter, everything is has the same stature. So whether it's you know a Washington Post columnist who's tweeting at me. Or some some guy like Hunter, who you know, I don't I have no idea who he is, but he's telling me I've got something wrong. Um, everything has the same stature, and you just there's no signal to noise sense of what you know. Well, what, first of all, you fucked up because you right. talked about them, both of well, them. You said Candyman five times, and now you got a problem. You talked right. about him right now on this yeah, podcast. Well, this, is, this is the first time I've ever mentioned the guy. Well, but I, I should have talked to you before I, this. I, I, I'm, I'm, bring, I'm bringing it to you because you, you, but you created it. I mean, it was, I didn't do it, it. was it was his, it was his podcast with you that kicked this whole thing off. I, I certainly I just, didn't uh, think that Hunter was going to do that, and I know okay. for a fact that Hunter is actually a fan of yours. I think what Hunter is trying to do. He's got a do, strange way of showing it. I don't think it's a smart way. <laughs> I think what what he's trying to do, and he, he, when I was trying to hold his feet to the fire and get some sort of a, a logical definition of what you do wrong he really didn't have anything yeah but he's well but he thinks he does and he but did he when i talked to him about it no did you, no what and, did he and, and half of what he said about dawkins and me was totally wrong half of what he said about the the relevant biology was wrong i mean he's just he's not he, he doesn't have his shit together but he thinks he does and there's this what there's a there's a level of of arrogance and and incivility and just a kind of a lack of charity in, in interacting with other people's views, which ha is now kind of getting rebranded on the Internet as just just American can-do chutzpah, yeah. right? And it's like it's, it's given us Trump, right? It's like you've got – Trump is the ultimate example. He's like the cartoon version of, you know, a person who doesn't know anything relevant to the enterprise, who doesn't show any uh, – aptitude for civilly engaging with differences of opinion um, and this thing gets you know amplified to the to the place of greatest prominence now in, in, in human history everyone's on social media or many people on social media are playing the same game and you know Ms. Cernovich is another, another you know just malignant example of this where you have someone who's got a, a fairly large following I mean it's not as big as yours but it's you know it's it's a very engaged following. I mean, this whole Trump phenomenon has 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 uh, shown me that pe that a small percentage of, of one's audience can have like a hundred times the energy of the rest of your audience. Like whenever I went against Trump on my podcast, or I mean, this is still the case. The the level of, of pain it causes in in the, the sort of the feedback space is completely out of proportion to the numbers of people who are who are uh, you know, on that side of the argument, and it's so it's incredibly energized, but it's just this weird style of self-promotion where you, all you do is that you brag about yourself, you say you're the best, you're and and you, you're 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 someone who has absolutely no basis to back up those claims, and yet an audience thrills to that level of of arrogance and and empty boast. It's it's just bizarre. But well. There's a there's a big issue I think online where people find like-minded people, 
and then they develop these communities where they just support each other and they they just have these these gigantic groups of people i mean not even necessarily gigantic but groups of people that find any subject like for me you know what it is Mm. flat earth right i get trolled by people all day that claim i'm a sellout because i don't believe the earth is flat this is real but but don't think there's a there's a I think this phenomenon that you're describing is both um, has really serious negative consequences, but also has some beauty on the same by the same token. You've got parents uh, all over the world who've got children with uh, rare disease, but they can connect on the Internet and bond over that and share tips and doctors and all that stuff. So so it is it's actually they're both outgrowths of the same kind of phenomenon, but it can be we see the the really difficult uh, uh, consequences of this in our politics right now, yeah. uh, et cetera, et cetera. I think but, we're talking about two different things, You though. think so? I'm talking about confirmation bias. I'm talking about a bunch of people that get together and say, yeah, obviously uh, I'm woke and the earth is flat and hmm. pay attention is an but technology art, allows an ice both. wall. Yes, it, it, but they're different things. The groups of people that will find, um, you know, communities where maybe your child has autism and there's some sort of an issue uh, that can be mitigated with diet and parents have had, uh, you know, some success with that and they could, you know, give you some enlightening information and you can communicate with each other and that's nice. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the hashtags that people use that they, they find search through, it's great. But, you know, that these little communities that you bond, they're, they're not, that's... Those those ideas, there's, there's no confirmation bias in the, those ideas. But there's confirmation bias in the idea that Trump is the man. There's confirmation bias in the idea that the earth is flat. You know, And if you just huddle in those little communities and just bark the same noises that everybody else barks, there's some sort of sense of community in that, too. Yes, absolutely. You know? And people love that. They, yeah, they love do. being a part of a fucking team, even if it's a stupid team of green frogs. And you don't, they have, love to, it. You don't have to listen to other people's views, and yeah. you get deeply, deeply entrenched. I think we're seeing, we're seeing this all through our politics and media right now. Well, you also see, when you go to those people's pages, which I do often, I don't engage with people in a negative way online very often, very, very the, rarely. Now, do, do you not look at your ad mentions? Or you, I you do, do a little bit, okay. but you know what, man? I just like to just go on about my day yeah i've, yeah, I've well, found that the negative consequences I'm, that you're discussing i'm more i, 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 I mean feed. i, I rarely i mean I, I, it's rare that i go down the rabbit hole and i go for days without looking at ad mentions i mean it's it's, it's more that if it, i publish something if if i ask for feedback i want to see the feedback it, it's not necessarily that there's anything wrong i mean just as your friend i mean i feel like there's nothing wrong with i look at my ad mentions but um but you, you function just, in a very different space i mean you're not Pushing controversial no, stuff out there. No, that, definitely right, not. Yeah. Definitely not. So I'm, I, I agree. I stay but offline. I'm, just, I'm, I'm sorry. Just, go ahead. No, I was just more worried about y- y- again Health. back to your psyche. Like yeah. it feels like you need a, a a little bit of a middle ground. Yeah, I stay yeah. offline after UFCs, for the most part. That's when I get the most crazy people, especially if there's any sort of a controversial decision. But are they criticizing you for something you said? Yeah, they get fucking mad at my commentary. They'll just disagree with who I thought won. And then they're so fucking vicious about it. I'm just like, just yell. Just yell in your own space. So you don't want to see any of that. There's too many people. You're dealing with millions and millions of people, and who knows how many of them are rational. What you're dealing with, you know, there's a a bit that I had in one of my specials where I was talking about the the number of people that are stupid in the world. Like, if you get a room full of a hundred people the idea that one person isn't a complete fucking idiot of course yeah. well you're being very charitable right yeah. i'm being charitable <laughs> More than one, yeah. but if you do that we're talking about 300 million people in the united states plus that's three million fucking idiots yeah 
So if you have three million fucking idiots and all your ad mentions, if you look at your ad mentions and three million comments are saying you're a fucking moron, and just just too many people, the numbers are they're not manageable. The numbers of human beings you interact with online are not manageable. So anytime anything gets negative or insulting and. I just check out. Hmm. I just next, next, next. I don't pay attention because you can't. But if I fucked up and I know I fucked up, I think one of the most important things that I do is I admit that I fucked yeah. up and yeah. I talk about it and I, I apologize and I say, look, I'm flawed. I'm human. I made a mistake. Sorry. And then just step away. Yeah. Like let the fucking chaos ensue in the comments. Right. Let all the people call you a shill and a whatever. Let all that happen, but don't let it in. Like, you're letting it in, and then you stew on it, and you have to bring up, you know, uh, Hunter and all these other people, and d d d that's, you're, get, you're letting them yeah. way too no, deep. No, 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 I mean, uh, no, I mean, I, perhaps I gave a, a false impression of, of how under my skin this has gotten. Just it's the a, fact that you talked about it at all, though, is too much. Well, no, but I, th I think it's of huge consequence. I, mean, I think it's given us Trump. This way, yes. th this, this way, the, the, the fact that... This style of communication is attractive to so many people. The fact that you can the bluff and bluster and empty boast and lies with being caught in lies without consequence. Right. Um, the fact that, that that people never admit mistakes. I mean, the, 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 you know, what you just described, you, you do, and which I do. You know, you make a mistake, you want to hear about it, you want to correct it as quickly as possible. Right. Um, that is the antithesis of what we're seeing now in this space. I mean, I mean when has Trump admitted a mistake? But right? isn't the, the difference you know? being that you, neither you nor I have any desire to control anything? Like, I don't, I don't want to be the leader of anything. Well, no, but you want effective, you want good ideas to right. win. Sure. Right? And you want the truth to win. You want the truth to propagate. You right. want facts to propagate. You want to be able to correct errors, whether they're your own or others, especially when they're consequential. And I think that we need a, we need a common ethic where... Lying has real consequences. I mean, so many people are trying to figure out what's the antidote to fake news. Well, one antidote is to be caught lying has to be devastating for your career, right? Like politically, journalistically, academically, as a as a public intellectual. I mean, to be caught in a whopping lie without uh, will require at minimum some serious atonement. And historically, right? it has been. Yeah, yes. Absolutely. Tradition, it still have, is in, in many spheres. We, we have slipped those rails uh, just to, to a degree that I'd never oh, thought yeah. possible. We're right? going light speed right into the woods. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, we're talking about people have figured out how to just to use dishonesty as extra fuel. I mean, it's like, it's like you know, the, 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 the whatever that the, the nitrous oxide boost in those hacky cars, right? It's like, we, we can use this stuff, right? And the getting the, the, the way you behave when you get caught, just which is to say, just go fuck yourself, just redounds <laughs> to your credibility in your among your tribe, right? Yeah. It's like this guy is so powerful, he, 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 he so fully doesn't give a shit what people think that he can catch him in a lie and just watch how he, he gets out of it. Um, and but that's that's what so what, what I'm when I was bringing up these guys like Cernovich I mean this this is um, I actually I I, mean, I, I trolled Cernovich I, I decided to troll Cernovich one day and I, I, I thought it was hilarious and I, it was just nothing but fun so there was nothing toxic about that um, <laughs> he's obsessed yeah. but but the thing that bothers me is that this has real political consequences and I you know 
Do you uh, think yeah, that this I, is a bl- this is a time period where we're in this sort of adolescent stage of communication online, where you can get away with saying things that are dishonest, and that there might be some sort of a way to mitigate that in the future? There might be some. I don't think we should act like dishonesty and bluff and bluster, to use a phrase you used before, is started somehow new to the human repertoire. I, I get that, that. The acceptance of it seems yeah. to be, though. I think we're in a period where that is true, and I think it is aided and abetted by technology and uh, social networks. I, I agree with your mm-hmm. diagnosis on many levels. But, I, you know, I was having an interesting conversation with uh, a guy that you introduced me to, Joseph Goldstein, who's a uh, uh, eminent meditation teacher at become my meditation teacher, old friend of Sam's, and he was, we were talking about the current political situation. He used a phrase that I like when I was asking him what he thought about it. He said, I'm kind of slotting into geological time. And I think that actually makes some sense. Not to say that we should What does that mean? Meaning that I'm just viewing it from a far, I'm widening the lens to look at the broad um, He's uh, getting... scope of human history to see that, you know, over time, we've got these ups and downs. Uh-huh. He's getting to the top of the mountain near Denver with a big bucket of margaritas. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> they're they're yeah. slotting in. They're slotting yeah. in. <laughs> Just look down with binoculars. Watch the bombs go off. Learn how to get water out of the ground. <laughs> get a solar-powered generator. And make good margaritas. Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't seem to me that this is sustainable. It feels like this is just going to be some spectacular moment in history where people were rah-rah Nixon, and now they look back and go, my God, Nixon was a fucking liar and a buffoon. Well, I mean, well, but I mean, take this. I mean, this is a, a point I've made before, and I, I don't think it's original with me. I think other people have made it. But my, my claim is that if Trump were one-tenth as bad— he would appear much worse because, like everything he does now, right. is, is is appearing against a background of so many lies and so much craziness that you can barely even weight its value. But yeah. I mean, just so I just uh, and this is one of the things I, I find useful about Twitter because I, I follow some very interesting people, and so Ann Applebaum, the the Washington Post columnist, who's just awesome on Twitter, um, everyone should follow her. She just keeps hammering Trump with with her own points and and other stuff that she finds and. Um, she just pointed out that you know, did did anyone notice that Trump Trump threatened a war with North Korea two days ago? Uh, it was in the F- Financial Times, and yet no one can talk about it because no one believes him, right? Like it's like it's like we have a president whose speech has now become so denuded of truth value, right? Perceived truth value that. He can say, you know, we're, if, if China doesn't handle North Korea, we're going to. And no one even feels like they have to ask a follow-up question on that topic because it just everyone assumes it's an empty bluff. I mean, I mean just imagine, it, like, just step back into the previous presidency. If Obama had said, if China doesn't handle North Korea, we will, right, that would be top of the fold this is all we're talking about today, yeah. right? This is just like it just comes out of a blizzard of of inanity and craziness. That that that, that, that you know he's 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 going after Meryl Streep. He's he's lying about Obama wiretapping him. Now he's he's threatening war with North Korea, and you know nobody knows what to talk about. So it's it's like the 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 consequence of this is we have a president who not only can he not be trusted to tell the truth. He can be trusted to lie whenever he thinks it 
suits his purpose. And now, so 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 the the, the state of mind that everyone's in, including the press, in listening to him is just is, is to take potentially the most serious things in the world not seriously, and the the least serious things in the world, like you know Meryl Streep or what he thinks of her acting. Uh, you know that becomes a, that dominates a whole news cycle. It's uh, it's very upside down. It seems to me to be quite new as opposed to I mean lies are are perennial, but I feel like we're in a very different space now with with, with the consequences of of misinformation. We certainly are. Do you think that they're connected to what we were talking about before, where you said that people would rather be electrocuted than to be alone with their thoughts? That we have gotten to this weird place with our society, with our civilization, where we've made things so easy. We've made people so soft, so dependent upon technology. We've slotted out these paths, these predetermined patterns of behavior for people to follow, where they can just sort of plug into a philosophy, whether it's a right-wing one or a left-wing one, with very little room for personal thought at all. Very, very little room for objective reasoning. We sort of made it easy. We babied them. I do think that it's imperative if you want to be a good citizen to have a varied media diet. You're not going to have a clear view of the world if all you're reading it well is on either on, or right. the new york times right you know i think you have nothing against the new york times or breitbart but i think you need to read many things and follow many different sorts of people on twitter not just because you want to troll them but because you actually want to listen to what they have to say and take it seriously well the new york times really fucked up where they really fucked up is where they said that they're going to after the election they're they're going to rededicate themselves to reporting the truth and read like what why did you say that like, I wish I was there. I wish I was Wait, in the office. Why? That just sends the wrong message. Well, yes. as if we they weren't into yeah. the truth yes. before. Right. Right. Well, yeah. it says yeah. they were biased. Yeah. They fucked up. Yeah. I mean, like, well, they the, had an the idea. The truth is they were biased. See, yes. I mean, you're the, right. The you're thing right. is, it, the the enemy is is um, was so grotesque in this case that it was impossible to not have been biased seemed an abdication of responsibility. I, mean, I, I feel it myself. It's like, people... Everything I say against Trump from a Trump person sounds like mere partisan bias. There's, I mean, I've got zero connection to the Democratic Party or to, I mean, it's like a, there's, there's no partisan bias. I mean, every, this, 100% of what I want to say about Trump does not apply to some other Republican who, who uh, is just a, stands for things that I don't, you know, policies I might not like. Um, it's completely uh, a completely unique circumstance, and um, yeah. So I mean, yes, yeah, so it's true that you know, to read the New York Times for the longest time, it was it was reading like just the entire thing had become the opinion page on the you know, the Huffington Post or, or right. something. Yeah, I just feel like at this stage of our our society, there's real consequences to the infantilization, if that's actually a word, of of human beings. In our culture, we've made it very easy to just go to work and just get home and watch television and just not pay attention to anything and not read anything and not really think and and then be manipulated. I mean, I think it's 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 incredibly easy to manipulate people, mm -hmm. especially people that are aware that they don't have a varied media diet. People that are aware that they don't have a real sense of the world, and it seems daunting to try to take into consideration like 
what is what is involved in foreign policy? What is involved in dealing with Russia? What, you know, what is involved? How do you negotiate with North Korea? Fuck, it's too much. Put it in the hands of the strong man. I think this is true on both sides of the spectrum, though. Yeah, because I, I think agree. you've got folks um, uh, who who slot into just a, 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 a media diet where they're just hearing things on the left and they're not they're not curious about or. Uh, um, I guess just, just not curious about enough to hear things from a different perspective unless it's just some right-wing palooka who comes on and then right. they beat him up. Um, so I, 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 I really do think, and I think it put, places, an inc- and this is going to be a self-serving argument, but I do think it, it, it places increasing importance on media outlets like the one for which I work to be at really vigilant about being seen as fair arbiters of fact. Yeah, I mean, I think the consequences have never been greater for that. And I Absolutely. think the, the reason that so many people on the right, so many Trump supporters, fear feel like they're right is because it has been proven that the the media was biased and that they did get it all wrong and they were absolutely wrong when it came to who was going to win. I mean, Huffington mm. Post had some ridiculous thing where it was the night of the election, they said that Hillary had like a 98% chance of winning or something crazy like that? Well, I think, yeah, there were some polls that were bad. But the, the poll, like the, because I remember this because I, I I sent out a tweet which said like, you know, bye-bye Donald or something like that, <laughs> like, you know, but the, the, the day of. But I, it, when I did that, I mean, that wasn't a prediction. I mean, the, the, the polls that I was going by, that most people were going by at that point, it was, it was like 80-20, you know, or at best 75-25 that she was going to win. Now, that's not, I mean, you, you roll dice for a few minutes, you realize tw- a 20% chance not comes nothing. up a lot. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I mean, so I guess that's no, not infinitesimal odds. Plus uh, Florida. Yeah, but but so but well, you should you should tell the story about yeah. what it was like to anchor the broadcast. Yeah, yeah. But, so I was anchoring the ABC News digital coverage that night, um, and uh, you know we they they give you the exit polling. You're not supposed to report it publicly, but the exit polling that we were seeing before we went on the air late in the day really made it seem like it was going to be a Clinton landslide. And you have all these folks who say, look at the crestfallen faces of the journalists because they're so upset that Trump won. Certainly, that was not the case for the folks on my set. It was that it was that we didn't see it coming. We weren't prepared for it. Everything that we were seeing in terms of the math made it look like this was a Clinton victory, a shoe in. It was just about just tying a ribbon around it. So when the night became long, there was just confusion uh, about what was going on. How did they get it so wrong? You know, it's. I, yeah, I think it actually goes back to what Sam was saying before, that people think when you see numbers like 70% odds that Clinton's going to win, 80% odds that Clinton's going to win, that that she's definitely going to win. But th- there's room there for so Trump a, to, a lot to of win. Room. Yeah, yeah, a yeah. lot of room yeah. there for 20% Trump to win. 20% comes up yes. all the time. It's yes. Russian roulette. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, those are bad. If it's Russian roulette, those are yeah. bad odds, right? You're not going to take that. You know, you're not going right. to put a, One you bullet, know, a single bullet six in a five-chamber yeah, gun spin and spin it. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's deer hunter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's really good odds. So that it's you're going to get shot. I, I don't think so. It's just so much about blaming the polls as it was blaming the overall tenor of the coverage, which made it seem like Clinton was inevitable. Yeah, yeah. It just it was it was so shocking. That's a hit. That's a hit. I think that we we can and should take. Yeah. We definitely. You know. I think we we weren't giving the twenty or thirty percent chance a serious enough look. What is your thought, as being someone who covers these things, what is your thought about the Electoral College? 
Do you think that that's an antiquated idea? And that I mean, it was kind of established back when you really needed a representative because otherwise you would have to get on a fucking horse and ride into Washington, and it would take six months. I can see it. You can make very powerful arguments that it's a deeply problematic institution. I can see those. The I can see the power of those arguments for sure. Um, there are people who argue make similar arguments about the United States Senate. Yeah. Um, uh, there was a there was a piece that ran in uh, the New York Times uh, uh, in their Sunday Week in Review not long after the election, making the case that the angriest people in America actually should be those who live on the coast because it's taxation without representation that we that the people who live on the coast are paying more in taxes, but they have less representation actually in Washington. Mm. Um, Again, this I, that's not research that I've done, but it's an interesting idea. Have you ever seen anybody present any sort of uh, a logical argument that there really shouldn't be a president anymore? That the idea of having one alpha chimp run this whole thing well, what, seems pretty outdated. I'm just not sure that he runs the whole thing. But he's got a lot of influence. He has an enormous amount of influence. But but we're seeing Donald Trump is seeing right mm -hmm. now the limits of presidential power. He, he is. couldn't get his. Uh, the the healthcare bill that they that didn't even make it wasn't even close to what he promised on the or in in some ways wasn't even close to what he promised on the campaign trail in other words he couldn't get the bill that he wanted and then he couldn't get that passed right. and now he's looking at having to watch his party employ the nuclear option in order to get uh, his supreme court nominee uh, uh, seated so i I don't know. I, th I think that the, the founders designed in many ways a really ingenious system. And we put a lot of attention on the president because it's one person uh, who get who's in our on our TV screens uh, or our uh, phones all the time. But I'm not sure how much power is vested in that person. Now, when it comes to foreign policy, it's a different kettle of fish. Well, it's enough that the EPA has been sort of hobbled. I mean, what they've done with the Environmental Protection Agency standards, especially when it re regards to emissions, he's rolled back emission standards. I mean, if there's anything that we should be concerned about, it's the air that we breathe. And we were moving in a direction. We were clearly moving in a direction to get away from things like coal. And he's going the opposite way. Not only that, but it, w w what I've heard is that that's not even going to be effective. Because most places have moved away from coal to the point where restarting coal production is, is it's not even going to recharge the economy in the way that would make it a viable option in the first place. The issue of climate change is just, um, I'll say as a member of the media, an area where I feel, I'm just speaking for myself here, mm -hmm. um, really one of our biggest failures. Um, and I don't think history is going to judge us kindly. And again, I'll, I'll put the I'll put the blame on myself. It's become it's a hard story to get people just that interested in, um, and it's, especially for television, because it's a lot of sort of graphs and science, um, and you, there's only so many pictures of polar bears you can show. Mm -hmm. um, and so I have I anguish about that because I do think it's it's uh, there isn't a debate. Climate change is real, almost certainly caused by humans. Um, I don't think we and, and for too long we fell for that in the media, where we presented it as a debate when it wasn't. Uh, now I think we're past that, but I still don't think we're covering it enough and as robustly as we should. Well, climate change, I think, is very. It's a sort of almost abstract to people. It's very difficult for them to wrap their head around, especially when they look at the ice core samples. And there's plenty of stuff online where you could 
sort of convince yourself that there's always been this rise and fall of the temperature on the mm -hmm. earth. And, and in many ways, that is true. But pollution is yeah. another thing. I think, I think actually, I, I just walked in, uh, so I, I might have uh, missed what you said there. But I think that's a crucial shift of emphasis because there is no argument about air pollution Right. It's consequences. It's undesirability. I mean, yeah. like you don't want particulates in your lungs um, th that you don't need to have there. And the idea that we, that, I mean, so you, you could completely justify a green economy on that basis alone. I mean, just imagine if we, we had no pollution coming from the exhausts of all the cars out there, and there was no coal-fired power plants. We just had solar and wind and and you know safe nuclear technology powering the grid. Um, it would be fantastic from just a pure. I mean, forget about the health. Just I mean, obviously, cancer is 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 uh, you know, lung cancer and and um, cardiovascular uh, disease is is a huge issue there. But just aesthetically, it's it's so desirable. I, I mean, there's no argument against it, and that's. Right. I, I feel like people don't make that connection very much because climate change is slow moving. You know, yeah. and it could be way out in the future before. But, but pollution isn't. I, mean, I know. Right, you know. I know. But it, pollution is a much less controversial than climate change. Well, that's right. why this coal thing is so disturbing. Yeah. You know, reigniting this production of coal. Yeah, it's I mean, unbelievable. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, yeah, I guess there, I have questions about whether it's even going to happen. In other words, you can roll it back, um, but uh, the coal industry, there are many, many, uh, they, there are many factors to their decision making right. about, for example, will, if they go and do the mining, is, is what they uh, uh, mine going to actually even be consumed? So, I, right. uh, you know, and I, I think that even though they're doing some pretty radical, making some pretty radical noises at the EPA, um, I'm not sure how far Pruitt can can take some of this stuff, given the uh, existing body of law, case law that um, has formed around uh, Obama's decisions. Right. So I, th I, you know, it, it actually gets pretty more complicated the closer you look at it, from what I can tell. Uh, and I won't claim to have studied it too, too closely, but it seems to get more complicated the more you look at it. The headlines may be scarier, I guess is my point. Well, what's pretty clear, though, is emission standards. Rolling back emission standards sends a very clear message that it's okay to pollute the air. I mean, it's, we, we were moving in a direction of going towards electric cars, going towards cars that pollute the environment less. I mean, um, even cars that use gas, you know, for uh, Porsche, Porsche has a 911 turbo, and the standards of emissions are so strong. What they've developed is a car that when you drive it through L.A., the exhaust that comes out is cleaner than the air it sucks in. Hmm. Imagine that. Mm. So you're driving it's, through. It's an, it's an air filter. Yeah, yeah. it really is. It's a yeah. bad air yeah. filter. Yeah. But yeah. It, it can be done. Very expensive air filter. I mean, it can be done. I mean, that's, I mean, and we can move further and further away. I mean, obviously, the problem with that is it's taking in polluted air. You know, that's the, right. the issue in the first place. I mean, it's not clean. You don't want to breathe the exhaust of a Porsche. But what they've done is managed to make something so efficient that it actually does emit clean air coming out of it, or cleaner than the polluted air that it's sucking in. Now, if these environmental protection agency standards keep getting rolled back, I mean, we're, we're going to go back to, I mean, I don't know how far they're rolling it back, but what you said is, is so clear. There's, there's nothing good about polluting the air. I mean, it's what we need to breathe, and there's options. The idea that business should take precedent over the actual environment 
that we need to sustain ourselves. Well, let's not forget there are real human beings in coal country who you know have generations of uh, have done have spent generations working in this industry, take great pride in it, and uh, we've got to think about w- what we do. But it's, but it's only the, the yeah. numbers here are surprising and, and also a little reported. It's only seventy five thousand coal jobs we're talking about in the country, and there's something like five hundred thousand clean tech jobs just in California alone. I mean, the numbers are completely out of whack. No, I, I think I think the the clean tech te- um, uh, industry offers an enormous amount of promise, but seventy five thousand families is not nothing. And when we're right, talking right, but, about, but then give them money, right? right. It's like, but like they that, don't want right. to hand out. Oh, you know, they but, want to work. But this goes to the question of meaning and, yes, you know, how, yes, you know, like, what are we going to do? Because we're, we're get, the precipice we're getting to is everyone, virtually everyone is going to be in the position of these coal miners. When, right. when, we're, to, when we're talking about, and that, this, that's a good thing. That's the thing. I mean, that's, a, that, that's the, you know, why can't they figure out that they just want to learn new languages and, and spend more time with their kids and play Frisbee and, and uh, have fun? We need a new ethic that and politics that decouples a person's claim on existence from doing profitable work that someone will pay you for because a lot of that work is going away. Could I, I mean, we could view it as an opportunity, and it is actually something. It, it, it does dovetail with this hobby horse that you and I have been on for a while about uh, about um, kind of uh, about the power of meditation and what it can do. Uh, to a human mind in the way you view the world and your role in it, for sure. Well, what are your thoughts on universal basic income? Because bring, bring it back to that, with this rise of the machines, if we do have things automated, I mean, some ridiculous number of people make their living driving cars mm. and driving trucks. Now, when yeah. that when those jobs are gone, I, I think it's millions of people, right? Yeah, Isn't it? no, it, and it's, I, I think it is, the in the States, it's the most... Uh, common job for white men, I think. I think it's something like, like nine million white men are driving trucks and cars. I mean, the problem like, with that is most people are like fuck white men. Yeah, yeah. well, tired of white men. But We're yeah, the patriarchy. But this is this is you know <laughs> Trump's base. Yeah. Um, no, it's these. Uh, I think universal basic income. There, there are reasons to worry that it's not a perfect solution because you do want. You want to incentivize the things you want to incentivize. You, you need to just understand the consequences of of any system you would put in place. But there's just no question that, in the that viewed as an opportunity, this is I mean, this is the greatest opportunity in human history. We're talking about canceling the need for dangerous, boring, repetitive work, and freeing up humanity to do interesting, creative, fun things. Now, how could that be bad? Well, give us a little time and we'll show you how we can make it bad. Mm-hmm. But, and it'll, it'll be bad if it leads to just you know, extraordinary wealth inequality that we, have, we don't have the political or ethical will to, to fix. Um, and because if we have a culture of people who think, I don't want any handouts, and I certainly don't want my neighbor to get any handouts, and I don't want to pay any taxes so that he, get, he can be a lazy bum, if that's the, if we have this, you know, hangover from from uh, uh, Calvinism, you know, that uh, makes it impossible to talk creatively and reasonably about what has changed, yeah, it could be a very painful bottleneck we have to pass through until we get to something that is that is um, much better or a hell of a lot worse, depending on on where the technology goes. I and mean, I think at a certain point, the 
the wealth inequality will be obviously unsustainable. I mean, you can't have multiple trillionaires walking around living in compounds with razor wire uh, and just moving everywhere with, you know, by private jet um, and then, you know, massive levels of unemployment in a society like ours. I mean, at a certain point, we're, the richest people will realize that enough is enough. We have to spread this wealth because otherwise people are just going to show up at our compounds with, with you know, their AR-15s or their pitchforks, and, you know, the, the society will, will, will not sustain it. I mean, you can't... You, there, there has to be some level of wealth inequality that is unsustainable, that mm. people, people will not tolerate. Um, and you, you begin to look more and more like a banana republic until you become a banana republic. But now we're talking about, you know, the, the U.S. or, or the, the developed world where um, all the wealth is. Uh, so redistribution is the end game. We, and that's, that, but that's a toxic concept for half of the country right now. Right, the idea of the welfare state, the, the idea the, of perpetuating that and, and yeah. spreading it across the board. Yeah, but th these are – so, yeah, I mean, the, whatever the solution is for coal mining, we should not be hostage for, – for the coal miners, we should not be hostage to the idea that they need jobs so that whatever job they were doing and, and are still qualified to do, that job has to continue to exist – no matter what, no matter what the environmental consequences, no matter what the health consequences, no matter how it closes the door to good things that we, we want. We don't do that with anything. We didn't do that with, you know, the people who are making buggy whips or, or anything or else. Or slavery. Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, there's just, there's no, um, at a certain point we move on and we make progress and we don't let that progress get rolled back. And when you're talking about, uh, developing technology that produces energy that doesn't have any of these negative effects, um, you know, whether it's global uh, climate change or just pollution, of course we have to move in that direction. And the, and the other thing that's, that's crazy is that we're not talking honestly about how the, the dirty tech is subsidized. I mean, you have the oil people say, well, Solar is all subsidized, right? This is, you know, it's just it's a government handout that's giving us the solar industry. Well, one, that's not even a... You have to produce an argument as to why that's a bad thing. We, this is something we should want the government to do. The government needs to incentivize new industries that the market can't incentivize now if they are industries that are just intrinsically good and, and are going to lead to the betterment of, of humanity. But... Carbon is massively subsidized. We, ha we, ha we don't have, I mean, if, if we actually had the, the, the coal producers um, and, the, and the petroleum producers pay for the consequences of, car of carbon uh, and pollution, it would, be, it would be much more expensive than it is, right? So it's already subsidized. You know, we do, so we should, I mean, we, we need a carbon tax, clearly. We need to, I mean, the tax code should incentivize what we want to incentivize. Well, there's a ton of industries in this country that you could make that argument for. The corn industry is one. Yeah. I mean, subsidizing the corn industry, when you find out that corn and corn syrup is responsible for um, just a huge epidemic of obesity in this country, and the yeah. amount of corn syrup that's in foods. If, you, if, you, as a, if you as a polluter had to pay the, the consequences of your pollution all the way down the line, right, right? Um, you had to compensate everyone 
who got you know emphysema or lung cancer uh, because of what you were putting into the air, your industry I mean, it would be less profitable, right? And it might not be profitable at all. And that's and we don't have um, we haven't priced all of that in to to any of these things. Whether you're talking about you know the, the chemical industry or 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 the cigarette or, industry. I mean, we're 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 addicted to the use of these fossil fuels the same way we're addicted to some people are addicted to the use of cigarettes. I mean, the health consequences of those things are they're they're almost parallel in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, and amazingly, as you have the same. I mean, I think you turned me on to this documentary. What was it? Merchants of Doubt. Yes. I mean, like, you know, like, like, you have the same PhDs. You got like ten guys who move from in, you know just toxic industry to toxic industry, defending whether it's big tobacco or the you know the, the fire. I'm in, that, I'm, I'm in that documentary. Oh, you are. Yeah, okay. the, oh, you because, are. That's right. Uh, I interviewed a guy named Fred Singer, uh, who was one of these people, uh, and uh, he's a climate change denier. And there's just some. I'm. It's been a while, but it was there were some key moments where I was like listening, listing for him all the major scientific organizations that say that climate change is real and that humans are, are major contrib- contributors to it. And he basically just refused to accept it. Well, mm-hmm. those those shows where you have the three heads, you and then the two experts and they yell over each other. Yes. And then we'll, be right, we'll be right back. And then you go to commercial. Yeah. Those fucking things don't solve anything. Well, there's, there's those weird moments where people are yelling at each other and you can't figure out who's right or who's wrong. I'm not a big fan of that personally. And I think that it, especially it was a failure to do that with climate change mm-hmm. because it, 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 it created the doubt. It yeah. created the doubt, um, and I think that was a very successful. It was a very successful strategy. Um, but but that's intention intention with what we just said about the New York Times. Because if you if you take a position as a journalist, if you say okay, actually one side of this conversation is full of shit, then you seem like you're not an honest well, broker I think of information. I think it's different to take a, uh, a position. I don't. I don't. It's not controversial for me to sit here and say if you smoke cigarettes, uh, the science strongly suggests you have a higher odds of lung cancer. Same thing with climate change, but it became politicized. So I don't feel. I don't. Uh, you'll notice I've stepped out of some of the discussions that have been taking place because it's not my role as a journalist to come down on one side or another but with climate change i feel absolutely comfortable saying this the 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 vast majority of scientists believe this is real and a big big problem so i don't what what you're talking about with the new york times and i don't really i'm not going to step out and take a view on it but what you what i believe you're saying with the times is that they were pro clinton and anti-trump that's different from having a position on climate change well, it's not. Well, no, because to have a position on cl- just just take the lens as climate change, you have one candidate who's denying the reality of climate change, or who's who's just cl- claiming that cl- that the yeah, but cli- you can climate change that is a Chinese being anti-Trump. Hoax. Well, no, because it, well, because when Trump says climate change is a Chinese hoax, you have to call him. Has he really said that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 He said it's a Chinese hoax. Yes, so, he should go to China and right. see those people that are walking around with gas masks right. on because right. they well, can't breathe but, in Beijing. Okay, but that's I mean that's that's the pollution argument, right. which I think is actually much stronger uh, right. because it, that's just you can't go to Beijing and say this is how we want the air to be, right? <laughs> uh, but and I think I think something like twenty I think something like twenty five percent of the air pollution in California on some days is coming from China. 
there's some amazing I could have that slightly wrong Jamie could check that out but please do there, there's some there's some extraordinary amount of air air pollution that we get from China that's insane I did not uh, know that yeah um, just makes its way across the ocean yeah oh yeah there's, there's, there's no wall you know we got to build that wall yeah. <laughs> um, but no but at a certain point I mean there's, there's, there's some there's some level of dishonesty and misinformation that's so egregious that if you're a journalist commit at all committed to being unbiased or a disinterested broker of information and, and a conversation. If you set up a conversation between, you know, the Sean Spicers of the world or, or the Kellyanne Conways who are, have their alternative facts and someone who's honestly talking about whatever it is, climate change, um, it, it's very, you know, you can't split that baby. But I don't think you have to create mock unnecessary debates around climate change. What I do think is that uh, with the Trump administration, uh, that it is imperative for journal that journalists uh, call out uh, when things are said that aren't true, but that I don't think it's constructive for mainstream journalistic organizations to have an openly hostile anti-Trump attitude or pro somebody else attitude, because then you lead that just leads to further polarization, but which is exactly what out. we don't need. But you call him out on all the times that he said things that yeah. are just absolutely not true. That absolutely. feels like you're anti-Trump. Yes, it can. Yeah. There's yeah. no yeah. question. There's no question. And uh, and I think that's a, an issue we're dealing with. And I, But I think this is a time of real soul-searching in my industry because I, I firmly believe there is a very powerful place in a functioning democracy for a press, for, a, for media that people generally view as fair. Well, it's also it really highlights the responsibility of getting accurate and unbiased information to people because there's not a lot of sources of that left. Nope. I mean, when you look at Fox News and sometimes mm -hmm. you look at CNN, sometimes you look at MSNBC and you're like, boy, how much of this is editorialized? How much of this is opinion? You know, it you need unbiased facts and you almost need it not delivered by people. You know, the, the problem is when, when people are delivering the news, like I, I, when you talk to someone, you know, they're educated at an Ivy League university and they're, you know, they're, they're, they speak a certain way, they act a certain way, you almost can assume that these intellectual people, these well-read people are going to sort of lean towards one way or another. I, I, I think that there, there is that issue. I, I, I would argue, and again, I know this is self-serving, but I still believe it, that the three broadcast networks have actually fared quite well in what is a incredibly difficult environment right so now. So you don't count Fox as a broadcast network? It Fox News is a cable network. Right. But Fox uh, But they don't have like Fox broadcast does not have a news division right, the way ABC, CBS and NBC do. So just broadcast meaning traditional old school yeah. signal in the air that nobody uses anymore. Nobody that, uses them, but, but we weird. refer to them within the industry as the three broadcast Isn't networks. Isn't that bizarre though? It is it is well, some people, you know, they put up their rabbit ears and get the, the signal. What the fuck does that? Cord cutters, <laughs> extreme one. cord cutters. JB you got it's one? It's twenty bucks. It's I get like thirty channels and it's way better and it works. There's no lagging, there's no buffering. I mean So you do that and then you get like Netflix for uh yeah, TV I, shows I get like Hulu and, and I have Sling, but when I want to watch a basketball game like this the NCAA basketball tournament last night, you, I had to watch you it. Watch it through the air. 
It worked Old really school. good. Old school. Wow. saying it worked. Wow, yeah. interesting. It's so, like well, what are the numbers? A vinyl uh, uh, collection too. <laughs> well, what, well, that's what's, that, the, what's the viewership the on, on a um, an evening news broadcast now? Is it like five million? On? No, it's around eight or nine. Eight or nine. Yeah. Okay. So Was it's there, still it a up? really big number. Is it uh, up? I don't. You know, I don't follow all of the uh, ticks um, when it comes to the numbers, so I can't a- answer that accurately. But people have been predicting the demise of network news for decades now every you know i've been at abc news for 17 years i've been reading obituaries all throughout that time eight million a night on each of the networks is still a, that is a gigantic number especially in an age of complete you know of micro uh uh information of niche broadcasting yeah. and uh the internet it's all that here are the yeah. numbers right there nbc so abc's in the lead ABC is the lead in total viewers. Uh, so and ABC and NBC, and this is just one week, March 27th, right around 8, and then CBS is uh, 6.5 yeah, so million. Skew- so that's a lot of people. It skews mm. super old, though. It look does. At, look at that demographic. Yeah. It oh. absolutely is, it skews very, very old. Well, it's all people. It's The majority is people over 54 or under 25, but I don't think that's no. the case. No. So like we're looking guys at, under 25. We're looking at 25 to 54. ABC has 1.6 million as opposed to uh, 8 million total viewers nbc seven eight seven point eight million total viewers 1.7 million 25 to 54 and then cbs 6.4 million total 1.3 million 25 to 54 it's funny like after 54 fuck you but Mm -hmm. before 25 fuck you (laughs) that's what they concentrate on this one it's it is what advertisers want um it's funny the the, vitality you can tell based on the ads i mean the ads the ads you run it's like you know for catheters and and mm. and uh, anti inflammatories. It gets, a little, it gets a little different on the morning yeah. because in the morning shows where we're also it's more it's closer to four or five million um, for ABC and NBC and a little less for CBS. Uh, the percentage of that audience that falls within the demo, as we call it, twenty five to fifty four, is higher, and so the ads are kind of different. Mm. But I guess my point is that you still have a a really significant number of people if you take the mornings and evenings on these broadcast networks that are getting their news from these places, which just gets back to the polarization, the polarized media atmosphere you were talking about before. I think in this atmosphere, the, the, that having the networks be seen to a certain extent, to the extent possible as above the fray, actually is important for democracy. How many does Alex Jones get? What does Alex he Jones claims, get? I think 40 million a week, but they include like uh, website hits and their big number, so... It's a skewed number. I've spent some time with him. Me too. Yeah. Uh, have you? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah I know yeah, him very yeah, well. Yeah. Okay. I've had I him on the podcast. I went down to Austin and Did you spent interview all the time. Him? Yeah. 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 For how long? Uh, how long I were you spent, there for? Basically, spent a day uh, at uh, hanging around his operation. This was, and I would say, in two thousand nine. Oh, yeah. So it was a while ago. Before the monolith that it yeah, is now. Yeah, it was pretty big back then, but not what it is now. In 1999, Alex Jones and I put on uh, George Bush Sr. and Jr. masks, and we smoked pot out of a bong and then danced around the White, not the White House, the Capitol building in in Texas Uh for a a stand-up video that I did. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I've been friends with that guy since 99. Well, yeah, I listened. I listened to your recent <laughs> podcast with him, which which was just interdimensional child molesters uh, yeah. that are infiltrating our airwaves. Yeah, he he went deep. We got him high and drunk, and he went. It was amazing. He went yeah. as deep as he's ever do, gone before. Do, do you find that he is different when he's not being recorded? Uh, yeah, sort of. There he is. There he is, just screaming and yelling. 
That's me and him. That's him singing, by the way. Here Moloch and Friends is his is yeah, his band. Moloch the Owl yeah. God. No, right. it's the he made up these lyrics. This song is right. all him. I, b I believe he might have ad libbed it too. G give us give me some volume on this. It's the belly of the beast. That was the name Truth of my no my DVD, huh? Belly of the Beast. Live from Austin, Texas. Strap yourselves in. <laughs> it's the belly <laughs> of the beast. <laughs> belly of that, the that's, beast. That's Alex. Uh -huh. He's so crazy. I mean, he's definitely different when he's not being recorded, but he is that guy, you know? So he believe, it's, it's sincere. He believes all the stuff. <sighs> uh, he believes I mean, a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Whether he's correct or not, that's a, a different argument. Whether or not he believes it. I, yeah. I was struck you. We had, I spent a full day with him, and then we had dinner with him afterwards, and we were not recorded. And mm -hmm. uh, I was struck by the difference in demeanor uh, off camera and not being recorded. Yeah, there's definitely that. I mean, I'm definitely not saying he's a he doesn't showman. believe it. I, I don't know. Right. I, I'm not going to, I can't, I'm not in his He's mind. a showman, for yeah. sure. What's really disturbing is when he gets stuff right. You know, like the World Trade Organization is a perfect example. He was one of the ones that highlighted the, the use of uh, agent provocateurs. Now, what agency, who, who hires these people? Hmm. But what they do is they take something like the WTO, which was a big embarrassment that people were protesting the WTO, and they hire people to turn this peaceful protest into a violent protest. So these people come in, they wear ski masks, they break windows, and they light things on fire, do whatever they do that makes it violent. And then they have the cops come in and break it up because now it's no longer a peaceful protest. And so it got to the point where the people were trying to show up for work. They had WTO pins on that had a line through it. Well, they had created a no-protest zone. And they were taking, I mean, this is all on footage on the news. They were telling right. people, you have to take the pin off. You can't go through this area where you work with a, a WTO pin on your backpack or on your jacket. I mean, mm. th that's crazy. And he highlighted that and made... Uh, and that use of agent provocateurs has been documented. This is a real thing. And it's a real tactic that, again, what agency, what, what faction of the military, what faction of the government hires these people to do that, I don't know. But it is a real thing. And I did not know about that until Alex highlighted it on one of his, one in, one of his videos. It's been proven. It's been proven that it's real. And so that alone is disturbing. When you stop and think about all the different things that he's informed people of that turned out were real, like Operation Northwoods, when the Freedom of Information Act came out with the Operation Northwoods document where the Joint Chiefs of Staff had signed this. And this was like something that they were really trying to implement. They were going to uh, arm Cuban friendlies and have them attack Guantanamo Bay. They were going to blow up a drone jetliner. They're going to blame it on the Cubans. And they mm -hmm. were trying to use this as impetus to get us to go to war with Cuba. Yeah, but how do you feel about the things that he's talking about that are well okay but, but let's talk about that yeah. first yeah. i mean th there are things that are true that's what gets really yeah. squirrely yeah. what gets really squirrely is like when when you find out that there have been things like the gulf of tonkin incident like all this is many things that have happened where there have been false flags where the government has conspired to lie to the american people and people have died because of it i, th I think uh, well i don't know a lot about gulf of tonkin but although i know more about it than than those other examples I, th I mean, there there are definitely ca there are cases where 
it's an additional interpretation to say that the government lied. I mean, so to take even something that's closer to hand, like weapons of mass destruction as a pretext to go into right. Iraq, right? Now, it's one thing to say that people knowingly lied about, that Bush and Cheney knowingly lied to the American people about that, or they were misled by people who were knowingly lying, right. or just everyone got it wrong. Like that, yeah, like it was just, it was, it was pl totally plausible to everyone who was informed that he had a WMD program, and they misinterpreted whatever evidence they thought they had, and they were just wrong. Now, so that's a spectrum. Um, I'm not claiming to know which one of those is true. I think it's prob probably the, the last is much closer to the truth. Um, and that explains many of these instances. But the, the I mean, that what's so corrosive about pure examples of lying um, is that, uh, and we may have one case now that's just emerging in the news. I, I don't know if the, uh, maybe the, the, the story has been clarified while we've been talking, but this the, like it now seems that Susan Rice came out, at one point she said she knew nothing about the unmasking of, of Trump associates in, in um, the, this recent surveillance case, and now it seems that she, it's claimed that she actually asked to have certain names unmasked. And, and so like this, is, this is being seized upon, again, just in the last few hours, as an example of a lie, right, which seems very sinister. Um, but as though it equalizes the two sides here, right? Let's, so let's say, worst case scenario, Susan Rice lied about having some knowledge of this investigation. Um, that doesn't, it says something bad about Susan Rice. It says something, I mean, she has to deal with the consequences of that lie, but it doesn't exonerate all of the lying that Trump has done about everything under the sun, right? So the, the, what's so destabilizing here is that the, the moment, the moment, and this is even true of honest errors. The moment that a, a, a news organization like yours or the New York Times commits an honest error, that gets pointed to from those who want to treat the mainstream news media as just fake news as, see, everything's the same. Like, 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 right. like, like you're no better than, than somebody who's just manufacturing fake news on a laptop in, in, in his basement. Um, so it's like it's and and the flip side of that is when Alex Jones gets something right, it seems to it seems to make him look like a a a dignified journalistic enterprise analogous to the New York Times or to ABC News, and neither of those things are true. I mean, there are small lies and then there are huge lies. There are honest mistakes b b committed by totally reputable organizations that are really trying to get the, their facts straight. And then there are malicious, there's just malicious, malicious propaganda outlets that are not at all trying to get their facts straight and are trying to engineer everyone's credulity and, and ignorance into something that is just purely a matter of, of uh, you know, tribal uh, sentiment, you know. And um, so we lose our ability to dis distinguish these different projects when we say, oh, look, you know, fake news, it, it, both sides do it. Uh, or here's a lie. Here's Susan Rice's one lie that she told in the last 10 years, maybe, and got caught for. And we have a president who lies every time he picks up his, you know, approaches a mic or, or picks up his Twitter. She had other problems because she had gone on, I believe, on uh, the Sunday morning talk shows after Benghazi with some yeah, outdated no, I mean, talking points. Yes. Yeah. No, Susan, Susan looked like she was <clears throat> itching to get caught. I mean, whether this is a case of she getting <laughs> Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I think your point is very, very important, because I think that when you have um, 
if you have one side that lies all the time, it's imperative that the other side don't lie at all. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. and, and the line and say, look, everybody does. That's it. why it's a, it's a tense time for people in my yeah. line of work because yeah. we we we're so much scrutiny, yeah. and and when we get it wrong, we really, you know, we take a lot of heat. But when we get it wrong, I I think we're pretty quick to say we got it wrong. Here's the actual. Here's the truth. Do you know that Donald Trump Jr. said that Cernovich should get a Pulitzer no. for exposing really? Susan Rice? Really? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that See, was, but, but that's a, that, that, that's why too. that's why this drives me a little crazy because it's not <laughs> Cernovich. It's the fact that that this is this is bled why'd into you, the real you, world. We, why'd you lead him down the yeah. Cernovich thing? You just gave, brought him right back. Himself. It's it's. I mean, I it's huge. Of we're yarn only, in front of the kitten. <laughs> yeah, we're only now <laughs> discovering the consequences of this. Let's come back in five years and it, see if if uh, yeah. we're t- we're talking about anything that makes any sense. Well, it's uh, it's it's all b- very blurry. It, it really is very blurry because we've never had a situation like this where we have a president that people just don't trust. To be honest, I mean, someone if someone lied about anything in the past, I mean, if if Donald Trump got caught having his dick sucked in the White House tomorrow on film. You know, he'd be like, "Look, I made a mistake." I mean, what, he, I mean it would be, be nothing. Yeah, it would be nothing. Yeah. Photoshop. Yeah. But do, 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 fake news. But don't, yeah. do you think? Just again, just slot to use Joseph Goldstein's phrase before about slotting into geological time and just mm-hmm. looking at the the broader scope of history. You know, we've had really. We've had periods of time where we had media, the the muckrakers. You know, where the uh, media outlets were didn't even pretend at times to to. Um, to not have an agenda. Um, what and, times were those? In the early uh, parts of uh, our republic, where we had, mm-hmm. uh, uh, was it Teddy Roosevelt called the journalists muckrakers, where um, they basically he was saying that their job was to rake muck, uh, uh, to be working in, in filth. And uh, the media and American politics have been filled with instances American media and American politics have been filled with instances over our short history of uh, untruths and agendas. And uh, then we have times of relative stability, and then sometimes we slide back into more tumultuous times. I think, um, maybe the Pollyanna here, but I think that we, the Republic will survive and that we will, that it, it doesn't inexorably lead to a time where truth doesn't matter. Well, it seems to open up the door for a viable alternative. Seems to open up the door for someone who comes along who is in in many ways bulletproof. Well, that is a, a very ethical it's o- person. It's opened a door. I mean, now anyone you're talking about somebody yeah. to to, to yes. run for office. Yeah. Yes. I, I just don't think anybody's bulletproof. Humans, uh, humans. I mean, with the exception of the Joe problem. Rogan, but, uh, well, but definitely not bulletproof. You don't have to be bulletproof. I mean, this guy's got nothing but bullet holes in him, and right. he's president. No, but right. what Joe was saying is it opens the door to somebody who's unimpeachable. A strong, a strong viable alternative, like someone who is ethical. Oh, the, someone I, who I think is, the door is open to anyone. I mean, who yeah. who couldn't be president at this point? I mean, but there's like, no one that steps forward right now. I mean, is it doesn't? Yeah. Do you think they're waiting? I mean, like who? Fuck. First of all. Well, well, but we'll see. You, know, you couldn't be president. There's never has there. There's well, never been an open atheist. They would attack no, your I Twitter mean, page. First yeah, of all. yeah, yeah. Good, good luck. They would hire. Um, no, I mean, I think they're. You know, if you're going to use a conventional political calculus, well, then yeah, then uh, you know, an atheist, being an atheist, having a history of you know, psychedelic drug use, having edgy positions that alienate you know massive uh, constituencies. I mean, all of that's a deal breaker. But I could. You would never have predicted that someone this scandalous and inept 
and dishonest and provably so at every i mean he can't he literally can't get through an hour of the day without something that would have been a scandal in some previous age of the earth coming out of his his mouth um it's just it's i think yeah i think i think there's there's no predicting who could be uh, president in the future i mean it's it's where it's you need well you need wealth and you need charisma on some level you need you need to be able to to get a, a tribe behind you um but i don't think you need any of the what people thought you needed even a year ago well what he's done by circumventing the whole system and by being independently wealthy is really kind of but even that was a sham i mean that what's amazing is that he is like i don't know how much money he actually put into his campaign but it's just not nearly what you would have what you i mean he really only had to pretend to right. be that wealthy. And it was incredible what happened. The, I mean, the like flip what, side of it is what he achieved with very little campaign oh, funds oh, yeah. and, um, and his wits. You know, yeah, I mean, you, it's incredible. It's like him or not, you have to give him credit for an unbelievable victory that well, no, very few people saw coming. It's a popularity contest. Isn't that part of the problem? Is, I mean, oh, yeah. you, you made a, a popular person president of a popularity contest. I mean, that's what it is. He well, he won. Also, he was running against somebody who wasn't popular. Right. So, I mean, also. that's, let's put it in context. Yeah. And we and we was coming after eight years of a Democratic president who was controversial in many ways. And um, it's always harder for somebody of the same party to run. So there are a lot of dynamics, larger, impersonal dynamics that were working in his favor. Yeah, it's just... But when we just to get back to the argument about like are we in apocalyptic times or whatever, I guess I mean I don't know anything. I, I but my instinct is just as a country we've we've seen times of much worse division. We had a civil war. Um, yeah, and, but it's, it's telling that you have to go back there for a for a compelling example. I mean I, I think this. Well, what is, about in the sixties? Yeah, we had people in the streets. We had the weather underground. We had, you know, it was, no, it was pretty. Tumult. We had, we had yeah. MLK and RFK assassinated. Yeah. It was oh, yeah. pretty oh, oh, yeah. no, th those divided are, time. Yeah, I mean, I, what I'm worried about now is, um, I mean, I, I think he's truly unique, and I think, I think, the, the, the way we're becoming unmoored from, kind of the ordinary truth testing, uh, in politics. Um, I think is unique. I, th I mean, the fact that we have a president who seems because there's a whole feedback mechanism. I mean, it, it, Trump seems to get some of his information from Infowars and from places like Infowars. Oh, he goes you, on it all the yeah, time. Yeah. You don't think he pays a price so, for for his for no. his? I mean, his his popularity rating is not high. Oh yeah, well he's he's paying some price, but the question is, is it going to be enough? And what happens with the next? terrorist attack, right? I mean, so, so the, the real fear is that if we have a Reichstag fire kind of moment, right, you know, engineered by him or not, I mean, I'm not so paranoid as to think he's going to do it, but I just think it's inevitable something is going to happen. I mean, we've, we've had a, we've had, what, you know, 80 days, 100 days, whatever it's been of his presidency, where basically nothing has happened and it's been pure chaos, Right. And the and the work of government's not getting done. The government's barely even staffed, and this has been a, a period of where nothing really has happened. But imagine a nine eleven size event, or something really goes off the rails with North Korea or China or Russia. Uh, it will be so. I mean, the, the pressure 
one, the pressure to normalize him as commander in chief will be much greater than it is now, and already everyone's feeling that pressure. Um, but two, the the, the 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 ability to clamp down on civil liberties and um, uh, just uh, use the power of the presidency in a way that that it would be very difficult for um, our society to recover from. I think it's just. I mean, I think the it's it's a scary moment, and I'm. I mean, I I the the people who are drawing analogies between him and you know the the 30s in in um germany um i mean i think i think those analogies are misleading in ways but again you just don't know how strange things could get if with, with a big negative stimulus to the system what we, what i think we know is that we have someone in charge who is a malignantly selfish con man Right, I think that is an objective fact. That's not a partisan thing to say. He is, I mean, that's as obvious about him as his hair. And to have that much power in the hands of somebody who is that, whose, whose ethical compass is that unreliable or reliably bad, in my view. And again, I wouldn't say this of Pence, who scares me for other reasons. I mean, he's a theocrat. I wouldn't say this of, of of most Republicans who I might disagree with, but there's just something to put that much power in the hands of somebody who um, is so disconnected from facts and a and reasonable concern for the well-being of of the rest of humanity and the future. You know, I mean, it's just it's it's an incredible moment, and I don't think we've ever had a president who you could look at and say that about so clearly. I mean, not even Nixon. You know, I mean, Nixon, it was, you know, pathological in other ways, but, you know, Nixon, Nixon was giving us the Clean Air Act, right? I mean, Nixon had some point of contact with terrestrial reality, which wasn't just about figuring out how to, how to burnish his, his uh, imaginary grandeur, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I think we're one huge news story away from finding out how bad a president he could be. And I think I think that's, you know, I think he could surprise. He could surprise even or the people could, who are very pessimistic. He, well, he could also rise to the occasion. Yeah, yeah I mean, Look at he, you, I'll, I'll being be objective. In a, that's the newsman in him. Yeah. See that? <laughs> well, no. I, mean, uh, I also no. like to, you know. I, I would be the first to give him or the system the credit for that. I mean, it's like it's, like, it's not that... I, I, if he starts doing something good, like you know, if, let's say a massive infrastructure project, right, that includes building out good things, not coal jobs, but you know, if if you know, fixing bridges, clean infrastructure, right? right. If he starts doing that, that the, I have no, I mean, that's that'd be fantastic, right? And it's possible he could start doing that for his own, his motives wouldn't even matter ultimately, uh, as long as he was doing the right things, but. His motives are so reliably uh, self-involved that I mean, we, what we need is a, a system. We need to, someone needs to be able to play him. I mean, this kind of narcissistic blockenspiel well enough to get him to do the things that would be good for the world. But I just don't see. I, it's just there's just too much chaos in the system to, for that to be a reliable. Well, like game. you, they they try to keep him away from social media. 
Oh, yeah. Well, that's working out. I mean, that's that's a big thing, don't yeah. they? They they try to pull him away from it. Yeah, but that's been impossible. No one can do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, remember that crazy press conference that he had, like just a few weeks into being president. That I, was I, unbelievable. I had I got text messages from friends that are Republicans. They're like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> yeah, but you know, there are, it's an interesting um, it's an interesting sort of Rorschach test because there are millions of Americans who watch that press conference and. Found it delightful. He thought they thought that he was Killed pound, pounding on the on the uh, liberal media. Yeah, when you read a transcript, <sighs> when, you, when you read a transcript of what actually comes out of his mouth, it's it is amazing. I mean, it, the 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 poverty of the passages in terms of information, and I mean, it's just the fact that we have a president who speaks like this is. I, mean, I could never have foreseen that. In our lifetime, this was going to happen. It just—it's unimaginable to me. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people there are just in, indisputably but that, millions but that's of Americans who find it ref- refreshing. Yeah, concern yeah, to, yes, yeah. yeah. Did you see Bill Maher's thing about Anthony Weiner? That he thinks that Anthony Weiner should run against oh, yeah. Trump. I, I did see that. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. need our own crazy yeah. man. Yeah. Because Anthony Weiner, besides his obvious addictions to sexting with people, was a very powerful politician and and a very good speaker and. He had a lot of very good quality. He was going after bankers, the same right. as Elliot Spitzer, right? Yeah. Elliot Spitzer did Both a lot of, of good things. He was going after the bankers. He was going after corruption, and yeah, well, I mean, so but that, that that's an example. I mean, that's a there's a, a flag planted that shows us how far we have gone from the normal. I mean, Elliot right. Spitzer destroyed himself with one instance of hypocrisy, right? Right. One. Well, it was pretty bad. You oh, know, okay. he was he, Trump level bad. I mean, there's just no this like. You know, I don't know. I mean, th- we don't have. Well, the hypocrisy Trump was that he was the law in this way. I mean, he was he was with a prostitute. Well, that's a stupid well, law. Okay, the real problem a, was that he was going. Law, yeah. He was going after. He was going after Johns and prostitutes. I know. He was going after Johns. I know. That was that's the real the, problem. That's the hypocrisy. It, what, yeah. yeah, the hypocrisy wasn't that he did something illegal where he paid someone for sex. That that law seems to me to be so archaic and so ridiculous. You can pay someone to massage you. You can't pay someone to touch your genitals. It seems ridiculous. Right. But I, mean, I guess the, the other piece you have to put in play there is that there, there are there's some percentage of people working in the sex trade who yes. are not doing it voluntarily, yes. who are coerced to one or another yes. degree. Yes. And that's a horror show. And, and that's, isn't part that's, of the problem yeah. with that is that it's illegal. I mean, it's a, that's the big argument is that. Yeah, yeah. Well, or, yes, that, there, is, there is that argument. And, and no, I agree with you that, that it. Consenting adults should be able to do what they want to do, but the but the the, the crucial variable there is consent. Right. You know, and yeah. Kids agree, can't consent. Agreed. And, yes. Yeah. Agreed. Yes. Agreed. Yes. Um, I just think that someone is going to have to be dynamic. They're going to have to be. They're going to have to engage people. In a way that I mean, they're they're going to have to deal with his attacks. It's good. Or maybe what people will be thirsting for after after four years is uh, is actually bland yeah right maybe mm-hmm. right yeah I, I would do with bland right now that would be fantastic <laughs> bland bland and actually super religious would be i mean the, the, the my ted enthusiasm cruz? you'd be for, happy for ted cruz, ted cruz is oh. not bland no but my enthusiasm for impeachment suggests mm-hmm. that i'm happy with pence right like right. so like if if i could find the impeachment button i would not hesitate to press it and pence given his religious commitments 
you know, a few short years ago would have been uh, among my worst nightmares. I mean, I would be talking about the the, the rise of the Christian right and the, the danger of theocracy. And I mean, his, but he's a psychologically, he seems like a normal, predictable, solid American uh, compared to what we have. You know, it's just. Isn't the other question like Trump's age? He's a 70 year old man. I mean, people don't really live that much past 70, especially people that are overweight and people that he, don't he seems, exercise. He seems all too healthy to yeah, me. He seems pretty healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that campaign. He does. Was, yeah. I, mean, I can't believe it. I mean, that's, you he, know, he's a man of energy. In his credit, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's an amazing yeah. thing to be able to do. How, that, do, you, how do you think he does that? It's the most that? punishing thing in the world. I can't even imagine I what his schedule like. He like he was having a good time. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> it did. It did. And in that press conference we were talking about, that 77, I think it was 77-minute press conference, mm-hmm. he looked like he was having a blast. Yeah. yeah. He gets he gets really energized. Yeah. I mean, that's it's got to be the most punishing beatdown ever if you're if you're not designed for it. I mean, I can't imagine how tiring I that, never that campaign I mean, you, you get exhausted for 30 minutes of looking at your at mentions. Exactly, so yeah. Uh, it's... Uh, no, you're, you you have to be wired differently. But you know, he, he clearly is is um, he's wired that way, and it, it, it's worked for him. But you need someone who's willing to submit to the punishment of running, and that's that's a rare person. Or it's not. It, and the problem is that kind of selects for things that you don't don't actually want in in a president, or at least you know, you, you, I wouldn't think you would want. Mm-hmm. I mean, it selects for a kind of narcissism and a sense that. That it really has to be you, right? It doesn't. Mm-hmm. That doesn't select for the in a normal intellectual space. You you're constantly aware aware of the ways in which you are not the best guy or gal to be doing the thing, right? Like you want to defer to experts, and and um, you know Trump is only I can fix it, right? And that worked. And mm-hmm. so you need there's there's something of that that creeps into the. Um, the headspace of most politicians, it seems, and and um, so scientific humility and um, just a kind of a sense of the limits of, of any one person's expertise is, is not necessarily the right piece of software to have running at when it comes time to to run for president. Now I, I want to switch gears a little bit. It's not it's not totally related, but it is in somewhat in in some ways. Headspace, um, talking about mindsets and talking about like you, we've brought this up, but really haven't delved into it much at all about meditation mm. and about how much it's affected you and how it got you back on track. And I know that you're a big proponent of it, and I, I am as well. Although I think I'd probably do it differently than you guys do. But I'd love to hear how how you do it. I use an isolation tank. Oh, really? Like a yeah. sensory deprivation tank? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I and I do a lot of yoga. Those are those are two big ones for me. You know, mm. I think um, those alone have uh, straightened out my brain. In a great way, yoga in particular. Yoga because it's um it's not yoga forces you to do it. You know, like if you you're either doing it or you're not doing it. There's no room for distraction. You know, you're you're essentially forced to deal with what these poses require of you. Mm-hmm. And I think that in in doing so and having the singular focus of trying to uh, maintain your balance and stretch and extend and do all these different things while you're doing, then concentrating almost entirely on your breath, which is a big factor in yoga. That it's uh, it has remarkable brain scrubbing attributes. Yeah, I I would say, and I don't know much. 
before I say this, let me just ask: What are you doing in the isolation tank? Like, what Breathing. are you doing in your mind? A lot. Well, you know, do you, I use it for a bunch of different in a bunch of different ways. I don't use it as much as I should, honestly. Um, but I concentrate on. Sometimes I go in there with a uh, an idea. Like I'll concentrate on material, like mm-hmm. that I'm working on, mm-hmm. or maybe jujitsu techniques that I'm having problems with, or um, some other things that I'm dealing with. You know, any any sort of issues that I have. Sometimes I do that. Sometimes I just go in there and chill out and relax and breathe and concentrate. There's a lot of physical things that happen inside the tank. Um, there's the amount of magnesium that's uh, in the water because it's Epsom salts. It's really good for you physically. It's very good for the muscles. It loosens you up and relaxes you, and that eliminates a lot of stress. And that physical elimination of stress allows the brain to function with uh, just less pressure and allows you to relax more, puts things in perspective better. Mm. And it also it gives you this uh, environment that's not available anywhere else on the planet. This weightless, floating, yeah. disconnected from your body environment where you're you don't hear anything, you don't see anything, you don't feel anything. You feel like you're weightless. You 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 have this um, sensation of flying mm. because you're totally weightless. Weightless in the dark. You open your eyes, you don't see anything. You close your eyes, it's exactly the same. The water is mm. the same temperature as your skin, so you don't feel the water, and you're floating. I'll say this. I'm not sure how this is going to go down. I actually don't have any questions about the, the the benefits of being in an isolation tank, even though I don't know too much about it. And I also am a uh, – I think yoga is great, although I don't do much of it myself. I, I think, though, that there may actually be a difference between those two activities and meditation. Mm. Because there's a kind of – this is a highfalutin term – metacognition, sort of knowing what you know or knowing that you're thinking – uh, that happens in the kind of mindfulness meditation uh, of which uh, Sam and I are proponents. Proponents that I think is a different thing, mm-hmm. um, where you're seeing, and I'll just try to put this in English. When you're meditating the way we do, you're seeing how crazy you are. You're seeing you're fucking nuts, and that actually has a real value. A systematic collision with the asshole in your head has a real value because when the asshole offers you up a shitty suggestion in the rest of your life, which is basically its job. Like, oh yeah, you should eat the 17th cookie or say the thing that's gonna ruin the next 48 hours of your marriage or whatever, you're better able to resist it. So what Like, what do you do? So, I mean, the basic steps of mindfulness meditation are to sit, most people close their eyes, you bring your full attention to the feeling of your breath, just the, you're not thinking about your breath, you're just feeling the raw data of the physical sensations. And then the third step, is the biggie, which is as soon as you try to do this, your mind's going to go bonkers. You're going to start thinking about, you know, what's for lunch, do I need a haircut, where do gerbils run wild, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You're just going to notice, oh, I'm, I'm, my mind's going crazy right now. But that noticing is the key moment, is in fact the victory. It's interesting because this is when most people think they've failed. That because, Oh, I can't meditate because I can't clear my mind. This is the, the biggest misconception about meditation. You do not need to clear your mind. That's impossible unless you're enlightened or dead. Uh, the whole goal is just to notice when you become distracted and start again. You return your attention to your breath, mm. and you just do that a million times. <laughs> and every time you catch yourself wondering and go back to your breath, it's a bicep curl for your brain. It changes your brain, and um, that over time creates the kind of metacognition I was discussing before where you see that you're a homo sapien sapien. In other words, you're a, uh, that's how we're classified as a species, we're the one who thinks and knows he or she thinks. And that just that knowing that you have this voice in your head, uh, as Sam likes to joke, 
He feels like uh, when he thinks about the voice in his head, he feels like he's been hijacked by the most boring person alive. Just says the same shit over and over. Um, uh, a joke that I, I hell, steal hell from hostage, him yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that that is enormously powerful because then you are not held hostage by this voice. Um, a similar thing happens in the tank. Um, I do uh, do a form of meditation in the tank sometimes when I go in there with without an idea, like if I'm not working on material or anything else, where I just concentrating on my breath in through the nose, out through the mouth, and I just literally concentrate on the breath, and the same thing happens. That's meditation. Well, yeah. Well, you, yeah. That's meditation. Yeah. You, it's, it's, it's not similar. It's the exact same thing. The difference is in the tank, after a while, after about 20 minutes or so, that breaks loose to psychedelic states. Wow. Mm-hmm. Have yeah. you ever combined the tank with psychedelics? Yes. Al- altered state stuff? Yeah. 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 It's what, trippy. What, what, LSD or, or mushrooms? Mushrooms. Or, yeah. mushrooms. But the big one is edible pot. Edible pot mm-hmm. seems to be as strong as anything in there. Huh. Like, I've, I eat enough pot where I'm convinced I'm going to die, and then I climb in there. And right. right. Every time I do it, I go, don't do that again. Because so, like, I just get out so w- terrified. W- what's your motivation when you're eating the pot and climbing into the tank? So let's see what happens. Okay. Yeah. Just be scared. Be terrified. Really? Yeah, because nothing ever happens. You never die. But God damn, you're just convinced that the universe is imploding around you. and that it, it just, But so it, it usually has the, the character of fear being a major part, part of it. it. But so yeah. it's also not embracing the fear, not letting the fear run rampant, and just sort of relaxing and giving in mm-hmm. to the vulnerability, your the finite nature of your existence, and just breathing and concentrating and letting... Letting the dance take place because yeah. there's some there's some sort yeah. of a weird mm-hmm. that one of the things that there's a big misconception about when it comes to edible pot is that edible pot is like smoking pot. It's an entirely different process mm. physiologically. Your your well, liver the, the time course is very different too. I mean, you can stay stoned for three days. Yeah, you can yeah. you could fuck up and eat too many brownies and you'll be gone for a long time. Oh, that sounds miserable. It yeah. is, but it's not because you get something out of it when it's over. The, the, the process is excruciating, but when you come out of it, you just feel so happy. Feel so happy but it's over. Is it, yeah, it's like <laughs> the joke about the dude who's banging his head up against the wall, and somebody says, why are you doing that? He says, because it feels so good when I stop. Mm, in a way, but there's no physical damage. Banging your head up against the wall, you're going to hurt yourself. This is true. Uh yeah, I don't know. I think there seems like there may be easier ways to get to the same wisdom. But uh, maybe. But I think there's also creativity that gets inspired by the edible pot, something called 11-hydroxymetabolite that your body produces. It's it's so different that most people, when they um, eat pot, they think they've been dosed. Like anybody who's smoked pot before and then you give them a brownie, they think, oh, my God, there's something in that. And they're convinced mm. because reality itself just seems like it just dissolves. And especially inside the tank, there's something about the tank environment that produces, in the absence of any external stimuli, your brain becomes sort of supercharged. Because what you're trying to do when you're just sitting down and concentrating and relaxing is you're trying to focus on your thoughts, but you're still aware of your body. You're still aware of your elbows touching this desk, your butt touching the chair. There's all these different factors that are, that are there's stimuli that's coming into your, your, your senses. Whereas in the tank, there's none of that, virtually. It's almost completely eliminated. There's some, but you can, you, can, you can phase that stuff out. Like, you could still feel the water a little bit if you think about it. You could still, you, sometimes you bump into the wall and you have to, like, center yourself and you have to, like, relax again and make sure you're not hmm. moving so that you don't touch things, which can kind of uh, dissolve the experience. Th- but, there are experiences in meditation where you have that 
same experience where you lose your sense of the body, but it, it, it that usually comes with more concentration. Yeah. You have to be very concentrated on yeah. them. I feel like you would have that experience and it would be even more intense if you did the exact same thing that you do outside the tank in the tank. I don't think you need any psychedelics in the tank. No. It's one thing I tell people when they ask me, should I get high before I do it? I'm like, no, just do it. Just do it. If you decide after a while, if you've done it three or four times, you're like, I wonder what it's like if I just take a little bit of a hit of pot and see where it takes me. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not going to hurt you. You know, if you're a type of person who enjoys marijuana or whatever. But the the tank alone by itself, just the absence of sensory input, your brain goes to a very, very different place. And as long as you can relax, as long as you don't think of too much about the fact that you're in the tank, just concentrate entirely on your thoughts, entirely on your breath. And again, let all those crazy, like, where do hamsters live? Like, all that shit. Let, let all that stuff mm. run wild through your mouth. But I feel like in the tank, at least, that gets to a certain spot and then it stops existing. And then the psychedelic state takes over. Yeah, well, it depends on what the goal is. I think there can be many different goals of meditation or, you know, quasi-spiritual practice. And they're not, they're, they're distinct. So, I mean, the... The center of the bullseye for me is not suffering unnecessarily, right? Mm -hmm. So, and so one thing that that mindfulness gives you is, I mean, so it's potent, it, it's compatible with every experience you can have. I mean, there is nothing in your experience that isn't an appropriate object of meditation. You just most people start with the breath because it's just a very convenient thing to start with. But uh, once you know how to do this particular practice. You're just your goal is to just be clearly aware of whatever your experience is in each moment. So it's emotions arise, thoughts arise, sounds come in. Your your attention is wide open to whatever your experience is. So it's not like so nothing in principle is a distraction. I mean, there could, you could be meditating right next to a construction site, and the sound of of the hammers is just as good an object of meditation as the breath or anything else. So there's nothing. Everything is included. But the, the, the superpower you're after, which you actually can acquire through this practice, is to realize that virtually all of your, of your psychological suffering, and actually, arguably, virtually all of your, your physical suffering, I mean, the, or the, the difference between physical pain and suffering, which, I mean, those two are not quite the same thing, um, is a matter of being lost in thought. It's a matter of thinking without knowing that you're thinking. And what, and what mindfulness does, and really any technique of meditation ultimately should do, is teach you to break the spell of being lost in thought and to notice a thought as a thought. I mean, the, 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 the huge difference is until you learn how to meditate or do something like meditation, you're just helplessly thinking every moment of your life. You're having a conversation with yourself you're having content, whether it's imagistic or linguistic, pour forth into consciousness every moment and so incessantly that you don't even notice it. It's just white noise. And not only does it completely color your experience moment to moment, so like if, you're, if they're angry thoughts, you're angry. If they're depressed thoughts, you're depressed. If they're sad, you're sad. So you become your thoughts, but you also feel, you feel, you feel identified. You feel that you are the thinker of your thoughts. You feel like a self. And it's completely structured by this flow of, of mentation every moment. And it produces 
everything you do. It produces all of your intentions and your goals and your actions. And he said this about me, and now I'm going to say this. I mean, so it's like it's everything coming out of you is born of, of this, this same process. And meditation is a way of recognizing that consciousness, I mean, what you are subjectively is a, this prior condition of just be, awareness in which everything is showing up, sounds, sensations, and thoughts, and thoughts can become just other objects of consciousness. And um, so, I mean, to take even, even a very basic uh, uh, example of the difference between, between pain and suffering, you can feel very strong physical pain, I mean, unpleasant pain, and just be aware of it in that, like, the, the sense that it's unbearable is virtually always untrue because you, in that moment, you've already borne it, right? The, the feeling that something's unbearable is really the fear of having to experience it in the next moment in the future, right? Because you're always like, if if, if some if someone drives a nail into your knee, right? You might well that's that, that sounds like it's unbearable, but every moment you're feeling it, you're bearing it, right? It's like it's it's what you're what you're thinking about is the last moment. And the next moment, and you're thinking about how much, you know, when am I going to get some relief? And, you know, what's the cure? And how badly is my knee injured? And, you know, it's like you're, you're, you're worried about the future continuously. And you're not noticing the automaticity of thought that is, that is amplifying the, 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 the negative, negativity of the experience in that moment. And we all know that you can have super intense sensation, which is either either pleasant or unpleasant depending on the on the conceptual frame you've put around it. So for instance if if you had this, you know, massive um sense of soreness in your shoulder that y- you would experience it very differently if it was a the result of you deadlifting more than you ever had in your life and you were proud of it, right? Um b Probably cancer, and you're waiting for your, you know, the, the biopsy results, and and, and uh, you know you're worried about you know, this is the thing the, the thing that's going to kill you, um, or you're getting rolfed, you know, like some deep tissue massage, and it hurts like hell, but you actually totally understand the source of the pain, and you know it's going to be gone the moment the guy pulls his elbow back, right? So it could be the exact same sensation in each one of those, but the conceptual frame you you have around it totally dictates the level of psychological suffering and. Or, or the, it can dictate the total absence of psychological suffering. Now, yeah. we were talking before the podcast started about your apps, and yeah. we were talking about the amount of different meditation exercises on the apps. Like, what kind of different meditation ac- exercises are there if you're talking about just concentrating on mindfulness and breathing? Uh, as it turns out, you can iterate off of that basic exercise in some to to, like... Uh, infinity, essentially, um, because you talk about not only. Well, I'm, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but basically, the 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 basic instructions are that we listed before. You're feeling your breath coming in, and then when you get lost, you start again. But then you can add onto that. So one big thing to add on is something called mental noting. So you're breathing in and out, you're feeling your breath, and then you get distracted by a huge wave of anger. Generally speaking, when we get hit by a wave of anger, we just inhabit the anger. We become angry. There's no buffer between the stimulus and our response to it. But there's this little technique you can do of just making a little mental note of, oh, that's anger. And that 
kind of objectifies the thing. It's a little bit like put, pressing the picture-in-picture picture button on your uh, remote control, where the story that's taken up the whole frame can be seen with some uh, perspective. Uh, so that's just one example of the little techniques that you can add on to the basic exercise, and you can go for a long time. So as we were discussing, Sam's about to start his meditation app, which is going to be called what, Sam? Waking Up? Waking Up, yeah. Um, and I have mine, which is called 10% Happier. Sam is going to be doing all the teaching on his app, and my, on my app, since I'm not a teacher, we we have experts coming in, like Joseph Goldstein, who's again the friend of uh, a friend of both Sam and I. Um, uh, and you, each teacher has their own emphasis, and you then start talking about applied meditation. So, how do I use it when we're? How do I use it in my everyday life? How do I use it if really what I want to do right now is um, control my eating? So meditation, for example, we have a course on the app that talks about using it to not overeat. By the way, I'm terrible at this. But you can use your, abil- your mindfulness, your ability to know what's happening in your head at any given moment without getting carried away by it, to not overeat. Notice, oh, I'm having this urge right now to eat, as I did last night, an entire bag of malted uh, uh, chocolate in my hotel room. Uh, but I, don't, I can ride that urge and not do the thing that I know is stupid. Um, so anyway, that's just a little taste of how you can take meditation and bring it in kind of numerous directions. Do you guys feel competitive? You both have apps? No, well, his my, isn't my, even out mine's yet. Mine's not so. out yet. No, I, I feel uh, <laughs> not, what, not yet. When yeah. his comes out no. and completely cannibalizes mine, um, <laughs> then, we'll, then we'll yeah. We'll see how, how happy yeah. he is for me. I actually, 10% I happy? I, uh, <laughs> I'll be like negative 500% What's 10% of zero? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I actually think I'm of the view, you know, now that I've been in this meditation app business for a little while, I'm kind of, I don't think it's Uber. I don't think the business model is that there's just one huge app that everybody uses and maybe there's some distant, you know, second. I actually think it's more a little bit more like fast food. I think there's going to be a bunch mm-hmm. of big players and uh, and you may switch back and forth. Um, and but so you, I think it's entirely... Does one need an app? No. No. No, no. you don't. But it, I mean, the thing that's useful and, and it's really useful at any level of expertise in, in meditation, at least this kind of meditation, is I mean, having someone guide you yeah it's it's like a a mindfulness alarm that's constantly going off or going off at you know periodically over the course of 10 minutes or 20 minutes or however long you're sitting and because distraction is just continually the problem i mean you're either meditating or you're distracted you're you're either you're either aware of what's happening at that moment or you're lost in thought and that's true throughout your life. I mean, you're either hearing what I'm saying right now or you're thinking about something else and, and you don't know it, right? Or you're, you're either reading the book you're intending to read or your mind is wandering and you're going to have to read that paragraph again. So this, this failure to concentrate, this failure to be able to focus on what you're intending to focus on is a, just this, this universal problem of human consciousness. And um, so meditation trains that and the other benefits follow, but the having a voice in your head reminding you that you're even attempting to be meditating is uh, very powerful. Yeah. Even if you're, even if it's your own voice. I mean, even in when I'm record listening to a meditation that I recorded, just my own voice remember reminding me that I'm uh, that I'm supposed to be meditating. Um, it works like any other voice, you know, mm. and, and it's. Um, it, so it's it's just it's a feedback system that you can't really 
provide for yourself. Although you can, obviously you can, med- I mean, you can meditate without an app, and and most people do. I mean, and I've spent very little time meditating with apps. I just think they're they're very useful. But you, you know, both of us started meditating. You started meditating well before I did, but we both started pre the apps weren't around. Um, uh, so the, you can read you can read a book, read a good book, and learn how to meditate out of the book, um, and just basically remember the basic instructions and do it. Uh, but it really is useful to have an app, especially for some people, because the, one of the biggest problems in meditation is this persistent fear that you're not doing it right. Mm. And so to have a voice you trust in your ear, just giving you, reminding you of the basic instructions, which are so simple, but very easy to forget, it can be very useful. I like the the idea of it being like bicep curls for your mind. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it, you see... You see it in the brain scans, um, and now Sam will correct me where I run afoul of uh, scientific um, uh, accuracy here. But this base, this this um, simple act of sitting, trying trying to focus on one thing at a time, and then when you get distracted, knowing you're distracted and returning to your breath, is changing your brain when you do that. You're mm. boosting uh, the muscles. Uh, the, and the obviously the muscle is I'm using it as light loosely. You're boosting your focus muscle, and in many cases, whether there was a study in 2010, I think it was done at Harvard, uh, that took people who had never meditated before and they scanned their brains, and then they had them do eight weeks of uh, I think a half hour a day of meditation. Mm-hmm. At the end of the eight weeks, they scanned their brains again. What they found was in the area of the brain associated with self awareness, the gray matter grew. And in the area of the brain associated with stress, the gray matter shrank. That, to me, is pretty compelling. That is. Beautiful. Yeah. All right. Gentlemen, yeah. we just did three hours. Wow. Wow. Flew by. Yes, it did. Yes. Wow, Thank you indeed. very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Really it was a lot of fun. It, yeah, it was a lot of fun. fun to meet you. As always. Yeah. 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 All right, everybody. That's it. Go do something else. Bye. <laughs>